I don't know. Have you ever scored from a corner, Karen? Have you ever taken a corner? I've never. Absolutely not. I only give them away. Okay, let's talk about the Irish guys. Keep up to date with the latest WSL action and the biggest interviews. Subscribe to the Koi Gig podcast stream on the OTB Sports app now. OTB AM with Gillette. Get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar. Right, over the next two and a half hours, we're going to somehow try and do justice to one of the most interesting and bizarre and bewildering weekends of sport that has been in a long time. Owen, good morning to you. How are you? Very well, Ger. How are you getting on? You've safely recovered from your trip to the wild of... It was Tralee, wasn't it? It was Tralee. Yeah. Uh, the conditions were not very nice, it looked like, on Saturday night on the telly. What was it like being there in person? Brutal, yeah. Not a very uh, pleasant experience, conditions-wise. I'm not sure how long it takes pneumonia to set in, but uh, so far, so good. Maybe it, tomorrow. It feels that way, does it? It, it? it feels that way, yeah. You're not sure. It was I, one of those nights that your jacket got wet. Yes, and uh, my jacket isn't very good. And um, when I took off my jacket afterwards, my entire jumper was wet and everything uh, was uh, was soaked. So um, get better rainproof clothes is probably on the agenda. At you some point, I stand, Tommy says you stand out in in the rain on purpose, though. You you kind of volunteer for this kind of wild masochism. Well, no, there's just no room in the stand if you, unless you want to like queue up two hours before throwing. And I would uh, prefer to actually watch Ireland against England and uh, maybe a bit of United against Spurs rather than standing out in, uh, sitting in the stand cold. You know? United against Spurs. I mean, is Ronaldo? Ronaldo must be in your performance rankings, right? I yeah. mean, he's he's like just scored his second hat trick for Manchester United, like seventy odd hat tricks in between. Yeah, he just he just disappeared for a while, charged himself up, and uh, came back full of beans and. Um, and, and ready to score goals again. So this is this is the new Ronaldo. He's he's back fresh as a daisy and 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 ready to bring Manchester United back to the top four. Or you know, I was I was surprised last Sunday week when Roy Keane was giving his spiel about Manchester United lacking character that he didn't finish it with a but lads, it's Tottenham coming next week. And I'd say he was tempted to do so, but even he didn't think that Manchester United oh, would man. be able to. It would have been amazing if he had. Yeah, because it would have been prophetic, and uh, I, I, I think that in the the kind of relative scheme of things, I think Chelsea fans and, and, and Arsenal in particular would be very very happy with how things went on on Saturday night. That was a good 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 result. I think Tottenham were looking like the threatening team, but everyone everyone around that uh, part of the table at the moment, with the exception of, of Arsenal, seems are kind of peaking at various different times, and it's hard to get a gauge on on who actually the biggest threat are. Um, but yeah, like I mean, Manchester United, it, it, they, they will get, and they have been getting a tune at times out of Man, out of Cristiano Ronaldo this season. Uh, I think everybody's kind of come to the conclusion that it's going to be his swan song, a, a last hurrah for these next two months, and then it, it might be farewell, Cristiano. Yeah, well, Tom Brady was at the game watching, and we were like, "What is going on here?" Wild speculation suggesting that Brady was there to try and seek his release from the Tampa Bay Buccaneers and the contract that he's in it was going to be a face-to-face meeting. But actually, it was a face-to-face meeting. It seems with the Glazers. I don't even know if the Glazers were there, but certainly it was like showing that I'm part of the Glazer family because overnight the news came that Tom Brady is back as well. Uh, uh, Shane Larry got a hole in one. Eddie Howe was asked repeated questions about the mass executions in Saudi Arabia and he simply refused to acknowledge that they happened or that they were anything to do with him despite the fact that he manages a team which is owned by, effectively owned by Saudi Arabia. And, the, you know, all that stuff is happening uh, over the course of the weekend and the dubs are back as well. It's like a, a nice, quiet weekend. Oh, we, we hammered England in the rugby. But it, it was bad. Yeah, it was good bad. <laughs> it was bad. We, it was, we hammered it England, bad, but it was good, bad. Though. Yeah, yeah. That's weird. Should we not enjoy these things? There, no. There's a bit of masochism Jesus, involved no. in that too, isn't it? Well, actually, masochists are supposed to enjoy their stuff. This was just pain. 
No. Spartan. Isn't that it? It, it feels like this is like a real sort of... You know, this is a real sort of like moral high ground moment that, that all of us can take. Anybody who, who watches rugby can be like, yeah, screw you, look at us looking at Ireland winning a game and not getting carried away. Not enjoying look how, it. Look how we've matured as, as a rugby public, as a, as a sports-loving people. So uh, screw you, you uh, anybody who, who thinks that rugby people get carried away with, with results. This is, this is the moment for, for rugby people to shine and, and show their modesty. Could, could say, own that uh, we've got the, the best uh, front, front row in the world. Best front row in the world. Where would it rank? Definitely best front row in the world. Ireland's front row versus Romania's front row. Who wins? Romania. Yeah, okay. All right, here you go. Uh, so, <laughs> like, what happened to, What happened to the best front row in the world narrative? That disappeared. That was like a little pop, pop. Well, <laughs> um, an explosion of gas there. Turned out it smells of fart. That's what that, that opinion smells of. Uh, unless you're... Unless you look, look, look at the, the refereeing, uh, of course, inside. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I wonder, I was going to like wade in there on a, on a hot take on, on Reynal and uh, just say that, you know, the, the, well. the sort of performance wasn't, wasn't great from his perspective, but sure, I haven't a clue, really. And uh, it's all a lottery when that whistle is blown on a, on a scrum penalty. And once you get the first few, it kind of feels right, okay. And this, this happens. This uh, side yeah. of this, the, the, the scrum is winning and uh, is dominating. And that seems to have happened. And I think Nigel Owens actually made the point yesterday that if he was refereeing the game, it would have been level pegging when it came to uh, the penalties awarded. Here's what's coming up between now and 10 o'clock on the show. Your opinions, obviously. You can get them into us by leaving a comment in the YouTube stream and tell us what you think should be in the Gillette Labs performance rankings, which are coming up straight away. Alan Quillen's going to join us at 5 past 8 to reflect on the rugby sports pages at 25 past 8. Anthony Moyles at 8.30. Adam Pope is going to talk to us about Leeds. Leeds with their, like, stoppage time deflation equaliser and then, after that, in dead time, a winner. Uh, Cheltenham starts tomorrow. John Duggan's going to join us at five past nine and we'll have uh, more reaction and analysis from the weekend coming your way at half past nine. But at 7.36, it is time for the Gillette Labs performance rankings. You know, that wasn't an All-Ireland winning performance. Probably should have won the game based on the second half performance. Is it a step too far to say it was the performance so far of the World Cup? Maybe not. OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette. I'm, I'm, I'm scratching my head at performances with just lack that intensity. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. Every week we're giving away a Gillette Labs shaving kit to be with the chance of winning. Just let us know who you think should make the performance rankings. The best place to enter is the OTB Instagram page. You'll see the comments box in our story and we'll uh, announce a winner before the end of the show. Take it away. Yeah, the bad, the good, the grand this week. So many different options. We're not going to possibly get to them all this morning but uh, as ever we'll start with the bad and uh, it was... The grim derby uh, yesterday between Chelsea and Newcastle, which we'll get to in a moment, but uh, Everton right before that in uh, the worst uh, position this weekend as uh, they suffered yet another defeat, put themselves into uh, further trouble, especially in the context of that Leeds United result, you'd think, at the weekend. I mean, uh, Burnley getting beaten probably helps their cause a little bit, but still on 22 points at the moment. They have three games in hand on Watford, uh, but they're level on points with them. They've only one game in hand on Burnley, and they are only one point clear of them. So that, for me, is the really tricky situation that Everton are looking at, and it's becoming deeper and deeper, their problems. Newcastle United are their next game. They play them on Thursday, and that is a massive fixture for them. In a weird way, wouldn't it have been better for them if Burnley had beaten Brentford, because then Brentford might sink like a stone? Potentially, but then you've got the the buffer, uh, which would have been... 
what it's it's eight points now, so that would have been a five point buffer between Everton and Brentford. I I'm not sure. I think I think Leeds Leeds and Burnley are the two teams that Everton are looking around at and saying we can really catch you. Of course, Brentford. I mean, there, there, there's the possibility. Uh, of sinking like a stone because they're new to the Premier League for sure uh, I, I said it last week I, I still think Leeds are, are the one that, that, that could possibly get relegated from this situation but Everton are doing their very best to change that view like it's hard not to look at this through the Irish angle obviously especially in the aftermath of reading the Sunday papers yesterday and Stephen Kenny in his Sunday section was asked about Seamus Coleman and uh, his potential uh, to, I guess, continue to line out for the Republic of Ireland. And, and Dan McDonald makes a very valid point in the, the end of this morning that, uh, you know, to, to describing him as a championship right back, as Jamie Carragher did last week, isn't necessarily connected to his place in the Ireland team, given how many championship and League One players are in the Ireland team. So it's kind of a separate thing altogether. And, you know, he is still playing for a Premier League team. Stephen Kenny, in terms of what he said, he said he wanted Coleman to be playing at the Euros in Germany. I've told him that, he said. He used the example of Stefan Lichtsteiner of Switzerland, who was almost 36 when he played for the Swiss against Ireland in a Euro qualifier in 2019. Uh, he says that he, he thinks that since Lampard has come in, Coleman's played very, very well. Obviously, the, the press conference took place in the middle of last week, so it was in the context of the Spurs game, and he reckoned it was just a bad night for him if he was 28. People would say he's just not had a good game, but because he's over 30, people are saying he's finished. Now, yesterday, I think he's been getting uh, a lot more abuse from Everton fans online. If you Google his uh, name, yeah, it's not necessarily glowing praise of Seamus Coleman once again, uh, but I think it's probably a, a, there, there's a distance between what is a top quality right back in the Premier League and, and what reasonably starts with the Republic of Ireland, even though Ireland are pretty well stacked in that position. Yeah, but look, Doherty's not fit for every game. Or if he is fit, is there room for Coleman to play right back and Doherty play left back? Like he, That was still our best combination. Um, maybe somebody else emerges or is emerging at the moment to play left back for us. There's definitely a bit more depth there than we had in... in um, previous times but you want everybody in form and you want competition and you want them all around the place feeling good about life like so uh, I mean I think Kenny can't say anything else but it's also the right thing to say yeah uh, like I think also as well I think regardless of who'll be at right back I think if Ireland qualify for that Euros then I think that's a, probably a positive outcome yeah also Everton took the Russian money so like you know the wages of sin are death they, they didn't blink twice about the investment from Usmanov and the sponsorship coming from Russia and things haven't worked out for you this is going to happen. Is our Everton the, the neutrals pick to go down? As in, would, would that make the most people happy? I think a lot of people like Everton, don't they? Uh, also, the Goodison factor thing that was going to save them. I mean, is it going to save them? Is it going to be? Is it going to be great playing in front of your fans who you think you're crap all the time? Yeah. Is that is that like great? Oh yeah, this shower again, who paid their money and got the right to abuse me because that's how English football works. Like I I pay money so I can abuse people. Bit weird, but uh, that ground didn't seem like the best place to be playing football for those players no it, like it, it really didn't and like especially like I know Wolves have been having a very very good season but I mean they, they did completely outclass them yesterday granted everything got down to, to 10 men but it's not till the 78 minute that that happens Wolves have 14 shots of their 7 62% of possession Wolves have uh, overall yesterday this was not a good day for Everton yesterday I, I just think that there'll be I think, I think there'll be a few little smiles if Everton go down and I'm talking in comparison to even Burnley who I think a, a lot of people have a bit of a, a distaste for uh, and Leeds United I think everybody wants to see stay up 
Um, although there's probably a few people who think you get rid of Bielsa, you get rid of my uh, love for your club. Yeah, but I yeah. think you mentioned there the, the Usmanov links with Everton. And also I think that there's probably... Uh, I, it's, it's unfair for sure, but I think Frank Lampard exists in a sphere where people enjoy uh, laughing at him. Um, I'm not saying... I necessarily do that, but I think a lot of people like to, to laugh at Frank Lampard where possible. Yeah, of all the people you want leading your team through a relegation battle, is definitely Frank Lampard, right? Yeah, he is. He's the, like I mean, is, is it Frank? Certainly, if, if you're lo- if you are distilling this down to a three horse race, uh, and like I mean, let, let, let's make it a four horse race. Let's just throw Watford in there for for argument's sake. Frank Lampard versus Jesse Marsh versus Roy Hodgson versus Sean Dyche. Like I mean, there's your Hodgson and Dyche probably come out on top there. I guess Marsh is still a very much an, an unknown quantity, and that was such a good result for them yesterday. But maybe Frank Lampard is uh, the bottom of those four, the results, and that could be the costly thing. Yeah, but the results don't—they're not making a lot of sense at the moment. There's definitely no. stuff where you're like, "Hang on a second, what? How did that happen?" Uh, so we'll see. Yeah, it, it ain't over. No, that's for sure. Uh, so that game Thursday, big one themselves against Newcastle United. And speaking of them, uh, it was uh, the ownership battle yesterday at Stamford Bridge. Chelsea against Newcastle United. Chelsea's first home game since sanctions were announced uh, against their lord and saviour, Roman Abramovich. And as nobody would have been that surprised to see, there was a, a number of pretty grim pronouncements of love towards each and every one of these supporters' owners. Uh, Chelsea skint and the mags are rich was uh, the ongoing chant on the streets around London yesterday from the Newcastle fly- from the Newcastle fans who uh, were waving Saudi flags in the away ends. Uh, these are the same people, I presume, who have uh, Saudi flags in their Twitter bios who go on Twitter to abuse journalists for asking questions about uh, their football owners who definitely have nothing to do with Saudi Arabia, the state. They are just kind of a subset of Saudi Arabia and uh, I guess fl- flying a Saudi Arabia flag is, is totally fine. But like you've got a, the Roman Empire banner still hanging in, in one of the Chelsea stands at the moment, you know, continuing to, to back essentially Roman Abramovich. And like well, what's been interesting is that I've seen this described as some sort of cognitive dissonance uh, that kind of is necessary to exist in football. But but it's not that, is it? Like it's, it, 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 is it cognitive dissonance? Are people like accepting that these are two separate things and they can get by with their love for their club? Or is it actually leaning into the grotesque nature of their football clubs? Like, I think it's probably the latter, especially when you hear the Newcastle United chants, the, the Chelsea skint and the Mags are rich chants and the, the Saudi flags. For me, that's not uh, separating the two things whatsoever. It is absolutely embracing the fact that these two things are linked and we love the fact that we've got this regime in charge of our club. Yeah, I think that's more likely... Uh, we have some video from Eddie Howe yesterday being asked questions after Newcastle's defeat to Chelsea. Have a listen to this. I'm here to manage the football team and coach the football team, so I'm well aware of what's going on around the world, but my focus is on trying to produce a team to win football matches and get enough points to stay in the league, and that's all I'll talk about. But is your ultimate boss, and having been sat man, responsible for this, though, you, know, you work for him ultimately since it's the company, so you can understand why you do ask these questions. I, I don't know what to answer to that. I'm going to talk football. That's all, that's all I'm concerned with. Do you never reflect on these bigger questions? I mean, the, given how the club is used, how football is being used politically, these are fair questions precisely because of that. I think I've made my position clear. Was Miguel asking the second question? Was it Tariq Panj asking the first? Yeah, I think so. Uh, asking about the 81 people executed in Saudi Arabia on Saturday and saying that I'll, I'll stick to football. So... This is. It seems that this is coming to a head now at this point, and it's obviously uh, as a result 
of uh, their opposition owner. And is, is it coming to a head, though? Or actually what's going to happen here? So Boris Johnson is on his way to Saudi Arabia this week to ask for more oil because of what's going on with uh, the situation in Russia. Like, because of Russia's illegal war on Ukraine. I should uh, choose my words carefully here and, and uh, say what it is. I don't think... The, I, like, I do think there's an opportunity here, but what, what we're seeing is that the billionaires are circling around Chelsea to try and get it at a knockdown rate, which is like them taking the opportunity of the war to get an asset at a lower price than it would really be. Well, actually, what should happen is club gets nationalised and gets given to the fans. Like, that's the only thing that should happen here. And they should be using that as a springboard to nationalise all the other clubs and say, we're taking 51% of all of those and we're going to give them to fans because we believe football is a community asset and that's going to wipe out all of the difficulties that have that football has had. You can only have a budget that accurately reflects the amount of money you're making as opposed to it now being a plaything for the rich but it's not really a plaything for the rich it's actually a political tool for the rich it, it wasn't just crack that Abramovich was having and it wasn't just crack that Alistair Ushmanov was having and it's not just crack that everybody else is having it is uh, either massive amounts of money in some cases Manchester United or it is political capital necessary for you to be able to function in a global society, which is what Saudi Arabia are trying to do here. So, I mean, I, I think, ironically, what, what's happened with Saudi Arabia is that there is more attention on the mass executions than there would have been if they were involved in uh, Newcastle. And that's down to people like Miguel and people like Tariq Panja constantly bringing up that story and constantly talking about the sports washing. Because if that didn't happen... Then what would have happened is the well Chelsea got loads of money there from where did where did Bramage get the money I don't know but she's spending it on all these gaudy things like oh look look at all those superstars that they've signed wow they're playing mediocre for enough football considering the talent they have oh he sacked another manager let's not ask any questions about his relationship with Putin which it turns out the British Secret Service seemed to know quite a lot about they were ready to go as soon as they needed to go they went they could have gone years and years ago so like don't be fooled. This, this, I, I don't think anything's going to happen with Newcastle and Saudi Arabia except Eddie Howe gets asked some uncomfortable questions and, um, and that's it. But I think that the uncomfortable questions are just becoming more frequent now and becoming, despite the reaction that you'd be getting from a, a cohort of fans, a, a, a more obvious thing to do. As in, a, it's before kind of felt that asking a question like that at a, at a Premier League press conference was a relatively brave thing to do or, or, or even some of the other journalists would be giving you a bit of side eye or whatever whereas this it, it feels What's the now, mood in the camp Eddie? What's the mood in the camp? It, it feels now that this is very much the story it is front and centre and if you're not asking these questions in a press conference something would be weird and I, I just think that we're not that far away from you know from, from Pep Guardiola and, uh, and other clubs being put on uh, in focus once again and, and it's not just Manchester City they're, they're obvious example there are a number of different clubs Arsenal for example who, who have very questionable links as well and, and all those people who are associated with those clubs should definitely be under the microscope as well and I think that this could potentially have a domino effect it's a very optimistic outlook and I'm not saying that anything's going to come as a result of it but I just think that if this is a real conversation it may actually you know, make yourself think twice if you're the next Eddie Howard or if you're the next person to go into Newcastle United Well that's the, what the price is Yeah like, I mean, it, it, didn't make them, it didn't make them think twice though you know But, like, that's, but that, that's the past I, I'm, I'm just saying that this could actually affect what's going to happen in the future like who, whoever comes into the club next this is a constant drumbeat of questions about the manager if these questions don't go away then it becomes very very uncomfortable for the manager because it should be uncomfortable to be a manager of a club 
who are bankrolled by the Saudi state. Like, that should be the, 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 the situation that, that you're in. And the role of the journalist is to ensure that that reality is, is experienced. I hope you're right, but I don't, I don't think that... Um, I think that, like, a lot of these managers, you get hours and hours and hours and hours of media training and you're like, okay, that's... So I've heard all these questions and I've decided that I'm taking my job, which is the... I mean, it's not, it's not the Saudi Arabian government, it's the Saudi Arabian investment arm. This isn't Saudi Arabia United, although it is, uh, and we all know that. So, I, look, I, I hope you're right, but I don't, I don't, I don't know. I mean, I don't, it doesn't feel like it doesn't feel like this is that different from stuff in the past. Maybe, maybe it is. Maybe, maybe the turning point is Abramovich, and and they do seize the opportunity that we were talking about like two weeks ago. Yeah, when the super yachts were getting seized and it's like well this is just the same just take the stuff take it and and give it back to the people who actually deserve it and own it really yeah well, I don't think that's going to happen just to, just to be clear I don't think that that sort of overhaul of actual football ownership is, is going to happen I think that would be but then nothing else matters so, so nothing, all you're talking about is like there'll be uncomfortable questions for somebody who's able to deal, who, who is able to deal with it like Eddie Howe will it be asked a lot of questions repeatedly and he'll go yeah look I, I'm well aware of what's going on in the world he's not going to pull a Phil Mickelson on it yeah but I, I don't think that the, uh, the fans um, seizing back ownership of the clubs is necessarily the only outcome here that is different to the current situation where everybody's got their head in the sand but what, what else is there though like, like I, do, I do think that as, I, as, I literally, as I just said like I, I think that there is a situation where the next Eddie Howe is questioning whether or not they go to the club that's not fan, the club's going back to the fan ownership I'm saying that people will question their links with the club and it's just a behavioural change. It might make it more difficult to get the manager that they want. Okay, and I'm sure there are definitely conscientious objectors in football. And I'd say there are already some who decided that they didn't want to be associated with that. And that's probably where they ended up with Eddie Howe. Like, there will always be a really good young manager who feels like this is his one chance to catapult to glory. Like, and maybe Eddie Howe leaves in the summer with his reputation massively enhanced and gets a better job somewhere that isn't associated with the Saudi state. But like he'll still have used this time to improve his standing in the eyes of potential employers. Like what, what's interesting as well on, on a, a different level to this is but what else kind of Tuchel was saying yesterday, uh, just talking about his own role and saying that there's no doubt I'll stay till the end of the season. And then, I don't know, there's this very... this conversation around Lille midweek and you know, not having a private jet to get there. And uh, I think Tuchel was gifted, gifted this on a silver platter yesterday when, when asked about this because it was just a great PR moment for him where he could talk about his own seven-seater car and how he'd drive it if he had to. This sort of uh, humanising nature of this whole thing where we are the poor man in this situation now. We, can't afford, we, we might not be able to afford a private jet to get to France and I'll drive if I have to. Like, I wonder what sort of impact that will have as time goes on, where the British government are like, oh, poor old Chelsea, those are real football people, real, real football fans, also potential voters. We can't be pissing these people off too much. And actually, the end game here is a pretty soft transition from one uh, megalomaniac to another. Yeah, and just one thing, Tuchel obviously is getting a lot of credit um, you know, uh, from loads of different sources. You, you don't have to dig too far to say Tuchel, class act, football man, all that kind of stuff. But Tuchel snapped under the same questioning mm that Eddie Howe was under yesterday and like at that stage was was actually saying the same thing as Eddie Howe except did it in such a forceful way that it ended as opposed to keeping going because you know the press officer stepped in and said oh football only football only because we don't know what's going to happen here but like you know I mean he is very well educated seems very much 
aware of the rest of the world scenario and took the job in the first place. Yeah. Like the, oh, we can't be expected to answer questions. You can. You're going to have to answer questions on it. You're going to have to answer for the jobs that you take and for the people who ultimately you work with. Right. We've only got 10 minutes left to go. Mark Dunning says, was I the only person that Googled, have Ireland ever put 50 points in England at Twickenham before after James Lowe scored his try? Certainly, um, things, things were looking up at that stage, weren't they? Uh, like, uh, so, so what's, give Ireland a rating out of 10 on, on Saturday. What, what are we I think you'd probably give them a, like a seven, seven and a half, you know? Like, international test rugby is really difficult. England were absolutely, they had the bit between their teeth, swing low at Twickenham, looked pretty grim for a moment there, and then we just thought our way out of the situation. Like, a few, a few bit of breaks, and it was like, actually, you know, we've got this, we've got this. We're, we are better than them. And that's what should have happened. We were better than them. We should have won in a controlled manner. We let them back into the game because, like, if, 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 if you remember how crap Wales were when we beat them? We absolutely annihilated them. They nearly beat the French the, the night before. Like, we like Test Rugby because even when a team gets a man sent off, it doesn't automatically guarantee a 25, 30, 40 point victory. Like, we played quite well. The front row of the scrum is not the best front row in world rugby. I know they've got injuries, but we don't have any strength and depth, it turns out. So, lots to work on, lots to be worried about. But we beat England at Twickenham in the end with double scores as a bonus point. Uh, like why is that Wales performance better on Friday than it was in week one? I'd say one of those factors is that they're playing at home now, uh, as opposed to how they were in week one. And home advantage is such a massive thing in the Six Nations, like it would be uh, possibly a, a more average re- reflection on Saturday had that game been in Dublin, but it was in Twickenham. This was this has not been an easy place to go for Ireland. Yes, the red card does make a positive difference. I, I don't think you can argue that it, it, it doesn't uh, help Ireland. Of course, it helps Ireland, and the, and the scrum was a complete disaster. But that's the context, and around that, there was a chaotic game that Ireland ended up winning on the scoreline at least comfortably which is just bizarre to be honest I think that uh, a couple of years ago the idea that if a a broken chaotic game emerged and Ireland would actually come out victorious away to England I think that would have been a a laughable notion the fact that that's actually after happening is so strange like the the question for me is just how much you can read into that and how much if that chaos emerged nine, 10 times now how many uh, times would Ireland win it with, with 15 against 15 and, and, and maybe they, they wouldn't win the majority of them at all but they did on Saturday and I don't know there's, there's, there was a strange kind of tone in the build up about Eddie Jones talking about Ireland and then potentially getting overpowered and, and facing a thing a side that they've never come up against before so maybe the red card is, is the most important thing in that context. But we're going to find out a hell of a lot more now when New Zealand, uh, when the New Zealand tour happens and when, when South Africa are in town later in the year to, to, to see just how well Ireland do hold up in those situations. But I don't know, I think that the, the, the prevailing theme from Saturday night is certainly positivity because the one big loophole in all this is the fact that England had the man sent off. Like, it wasn't really Ireland's fault. Like, I mean, if you're going to judge the Ireland performance... Judge it on the scrum for sure. Um, and would be would be nice to see us play against fifteen for a change in the Six Nations. Just you know, back to back games. There's mm. been red cards, and obviously the red card in the Italy game. Like Italy played okay against Scotland, scored twenty two points. You know, it wasn't the complete washout that our game was. So again, we're just 
there, there's a, there is a bit of fluke off it the way there was the fluke off Wales last year it's like oh all these decisions are going in one direction and when the decisions didn't go our direction we got beaten by the French and maybe we will greatly regret the opportunity to have won a Grand Slam this year but uh, I think it's good to have stuff to work on in the aftermath of a game where you win and are definitely the better team but there's loads of things that you need to do better What happens if Ireland end up stumbling across one and I'm talking about just like just a, a good backup to to Andrew Porter, a younger version of Keane Healy, basically because like as, as great as he's been, it, it's unfortunately just the, the wrong end of the career at the moment. If Ireland somehow managed to, to find somebody who is a, a good backup to Andrew Porter come next year, like does that completely change how, how it's viewed? Because I think people will accept front row in the world, Owen, best front row in the world. I think but I think people will accept that like that the furlong thing was was an off day, right? And like I mean. I don't even know if, if it was. Is, is it, it could potentially be the rest of the front row getting decimated as well and Furlong ends up taking yeah. uh, a, lot, a lot of the, the heat for that. And the refereeing issue. That and they, re- seem to, they seem to be very upset about. But it's, it just seems that there's this one very obvious area now and if that improves over the course of the next little while I would have thought that the picture looks pretty positive. The only thing is, I think I, I actually do think that, that there's, a, there's a deeper thing here on top of it all is that the last time we played England the year before World Cup, we also beat them. Uh, and we beat them pulling up a little bit as well, to be honest. I mean, we all know what happened next. So I actually think that there's a little bit of that. That People automatically expect that this Eddie Jones team is going to come next year yeah. and Ireland are going to fall away next year. Well, and that's not... what's happened in history, so <laughs> yeah. we'll be argue. Well, it was the most recent one. I don't think it's guaranteed that we're going to fall away. I think it, it's definitely guaranteed that they're going to come back. I thought they were excellent down to 14 men for a large portion of the game. Like all the stuff beforehand, oh, they haven't a clue what they're doing. That was not a team who was laying down or didn't know what they were doing or were, who were devoid of identity or any of that kind of stuff. They knew exactly what they were supposed to be doing and they followed that very quickly and they have they have emerging leaders and they have an emerging style and they have an emerging core and look, we should uh, we should hope that England get rid of Eddie Jones. That's what we should hope. Like I, I think Eddie Jones has done himself a lot of favours uh, after Saturday or a, a favour has been handed to him. The best thing that could have happened to Eddie Jones is is he was getting sent off because all of a sudden you know, there's a, a little bit of a, a sob story for England and England showed up gutsy fighting for their head coach uh, yeah. despite only having 14 of them and I, I think that that could, that could uh, stand Eddie Jones in good set in the long run and we but know that they're going to come good next year. We're going to get to rugby with Alan Quillen in just a moment. If you're watching this on podcast then make sure that you subscribe to the OTB rugby feed as well and uh, you can subscribe to our YouTube channel while you're at it uh, off the, uh, youtube.com forward slash off the ball. It's 8 o'clock this morning we've got to get to green. Where are we starting? Uh, let's just give Tom Brady a quick mention here. He is back. He's going to play for the Bucks once again next season. And uh, I'm not sure, was this something that you saw coming? Uh, I guess the overtures were there once he's involved with uh, a football club owned by the same people that own his American football club. I didn't, I didn't think it was going to happen this quickly. He's been retired for 40 days. Mm. A long time to spend in the desert alone, wandering, I mean... Is his giant mansion, one of the giant mansions he lives in, really as bad as uh, 40 days in the desert that our Lord found, whatever it was that he found there? Like, uh, I don't know. I, I did not expect this to happen this quickly, but certainly the rumours were non-stop. When he said you never say never on the day he retired, immediately American media went into overdrive. And the last week in the NFL has been absolutely wild. Like, one of the biggest trades in history, with a quarterback, Aaron Rodgers is deciding to stay where he is like a couple of hours later, a player banned for a year for gambling on his own team. 
uh, one of the best players in the league traded and then Tom Brady coming out of retirement um, I'd probably forgotten a load of it there as well so mm. um, the Buccaneers immediately like their odds collapsed for everything so he is that transformative figure and it, it did feel like if he was coming back that he might come back somewhere else that maybe he would try and get onto the San Francisco 49ers because he tried that before but then again like is this the end of him I don't know There's, they're like oh this is it it's one last dance style thing but actually that might not be the case yeah like just go, like he obviously led the NFL in yards passing touchdowns completions attempts in 2021 so I mean maybe he's accepting that if he comes off that he's still going to be an excellent quarterback he probably looks at his division in the NFC South and thinks to himself he can win that I know Deshaun yeah. Watson might be playing there next next season with the Panthers there's, there's talks of that happening so maybe that changes but they're still in a very very good position to be playing playoff football next year a quick word for the guy as well who I'm not sure did you see this uh, the last ever Tom Brady touchdown pass went on auction last week and an unidentified person spent $518,000 for the ball that was passed to Mike Evans in his last ever play uh, it's not his last ever play anymore so you spent half a mil on something that probably isn't even that valuable I wonder is there like a residual value in the fact that it was like the pre-Brady retirement retirement so like oh this is important given that like I, I don't really understand how sports memorabilia acquires the value that it acquires just think of it like an NFT I mean it definitely feels a little bit like an NFT doesn't it Smart. although at least you get the football you can throw that around yeah um, okay last one the dubs Dubs are in green for the first time in a while. They're back. Um, they're I hate to say I told you so, Owen. What were you saying, though? We were saying, I was saying, do not write the dubs off. The dubs are being written off everywhere. Desi's being written off. These, these players are being written off. Stop writing them off. They're not gone. They're just not fit. I see, I see they changed, their soul changed, according to Eamon Sweeney in the papers today. But actually, they got players back from injury. That's what happened. They have more players available to them now than they've had. And so, therefore... They have better players available to them and they have strength and depth and they have players in the right position. Like, did Brian Hare play in the forwards? Is that, is that maybe where he might end up in the summer? Yeah. Is that maybe his best position? Were they just giving him game time to, you know, like do that thing that Geezer does where, like, and that Ajax do where you play a load of football, you get on the ball and you get responsibility and you, okay, we're trying you out here. It's an experiment, but you're going to get on the ball and we want to get football into you and they got football into him. And the forwards were pretty good yesterday. Well, like, I, I don't. So the in, the, for, in the first half, and the game's over at that stage. Yeah, and like I, I think we've seen that on a couple of occasions this time uh, during this league campaign as well. That it is one half of football that can win you games. But like, the, I, I do think that some of the the talk of Dublin demise is still well founded, and the, because the context of it all was, we've, we're coming from a team that's won six whole Ireland's in a row, and nobody had any hope. To the point of us yeah, now, but, uh, where but, everybody else has a bit of hope, and yeah. that's still obviously the that's case. Not the context, though, that's not the context. I, that, I that, think that's history. That's this team is no longer that team. But this year, this year, Dublin are absolutely all Ireland contenders, and there were various stages where it was like, oh, no, you can forget about Dublin now for a long time. That's it. No, the, the players coming through, they're nowhere near as good. They don't have to be as good. They don't need Jeremy Connolly and Paul Flynn and Stephen Cluxton to win in All Ireland. Tyrone won the All Ireland last year without those players. Yeah, like I, I do think though that the, a lot of the, the conversation was around how did they get back to the level where they were a couple of years ago, which is of course the greatest team of all time. And I think the expectation was that it's, it's going to take a, a little while if that's going to happen at all. And that hasn't changed after yesterday. The question is, can a weaker Dublin than a couple of years ago get back to winning in All-Ireland? I would still say they're, they're not favourites, and I would put maybe two... 
Okay, two so teams at least in, in in front of them. We talked about this a little bit on on Friday evening show. If you put uh, Dublin and Mayo in an All Ireland final today, right? But having got there, and so therefore, you know, some players are in good form, etc. Price it up for me. Oh, What's God. the spread? It's, it's probably it's probably Mayo minus two, isn't it? Or minus one. It's Mayo minus one. It's Kerry. So give me this one for Kerry. Probably Kerry minus two. Okay, I'd say Kerry minus two, Mayo, Mayo minus, minus one. one. And that's it. And then Dublin are favoured against everybody else? It's not three points or five points or anything like that. Like, no. Dublin are right there. But Absolutely th- right there. And if, if if the ball, if any of those Dublin forwards is feeling the weight of the ball in their hands in the last two minutes with the game on the line, you're giving them, like, if Costello has it to win an All-Ireland, I, I, I'm backing him to, to do that. I'm backing Dean Rock to get his free taken back. Like, I, I just think, ju- just to kind of like, I know... There's a multitude of other opinions that, that have been voiced, but I just think that after the All-Ireland semi-final last week, last year, I thought that that was one half of football where Dublin froze and something weird happened. And when we were doing our crystal ball at the start of the year, I said Dublin would win the All-Ireland this year. So I do think the opening stages of the league this year were a little bit eye-opening, where it was like, OK, they're not automatically... There, were, there was more to that second half of football than just that 35 minutes. There, yeah. there, there, there is a, a greater downturn. So I do think that that still exists but they're not going to dip low enough for them to not be in the conversation this year. No, they're absolutely like you're 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 penciling them in for an All Ireland semi final appearance this year. Like uh, you were you were making them favourites, I think, for the Leinster title. Yeah, like I, I definitely think so. And and of course, Newbridge was a massive moment for for Kildare the previous week, and that will that will give them belief when these two counties inevitably come up against each other in the summertime. But you're definitely backing Dublin in, in that occasion, especially after yesterday. And yes, things have changed after, after yesterday's performance. But as you say yourself, new information came to light. Uh, the suggestion sent into OTB on Instagram. Sean Fox says Monaghan and Green. Bloody Monaghan. Again. Again. What, like, and Donegal, what were you doing? We, Kildare really needed Donegal to do uh, Monaghan and that would have been a massive favour for him. But they just couldn't do it at home. I think it's it, it Monaghan's first win in Bally Buffet in a, a million years. Yeah. Uh, Trevor Halloran says Shane Lowry and Green had a home one overnight. If you missed that, red for Raynal. He made sympathy decisions for England. There was, a, I mean, there was always going to be a bit of evening things up, but not not issuing a yellow card for the scrum penalties. Maybe because he didn't believe in them. Luis Diaz and Green. I mean, Luis Diaz, like something something good has gone on at Liverpool where they can just sign players and stick them straight in the team. We'll talk about that later on. Dave says Judd Trump a one four seven. Odegaard and Green what a bargain for 30 million says Muran Yassin and Kevin Foyne says Dublin and Ronaldo in Green we'll talk Ronaldo a little bit later on in the week but for now that is your performance rankings OTBAN's performance rankings with Gillette yeah your performance rankings every Monday morning with Gillette Labs we've got a packed show still to come getting football with Anthony Moyles talking uh, football with Adam Pope at the BBC rugby with Alan Quinlan next but first here's Kenny Cunningham talking about the trouble that Everton are in just to touch on relegation, we didn't see Everton today, but beaten again, it's now, I think it's two wins in 19 matches for Everton. Leeds got a late winner. Watford won today. The cliche is they're too good to go down, but the argument is, well, then you're too good to be in a relegation scrap in the first place. Yeah. How much trouble are Everton in right now? Yeah, I think it's about, well, five teams are in a lot of, uh, a lot of trouble. I think those back-to-back wins from Brentwood have taken them out of the equation. Newcastle, likewise, all those teams below them, I think it's the five teams, they're all in uh, trouble. That was a big win for Leeds today, Nathan. I watched the midweek. They were literally all at sea. 
losing to Aston Villa at home. They looked absolutely rudderless and devoid of confidence in that game. But they've bounced back today, got a last-minute winner. So that lift the whole uh, football club. Burnley looked as if they were putting a bit of a run together to get themselves there. They've dropped back as well. Watford, you'd written them off a couple of weeks ago. Suddenly they found a win from absolutely nowhere yesterday. And you're right, Everton are banging it. You're absolutely right. Of course, they're not good to go down. Big problem they have. We're talking about Arsenal in terms of destroys they've made in central defence. How much more solid they're looking for Everton is it's the opposite they've got a gaping hole in the centre of their defence Michael Keane the most experienced defender Lampard's had to take him out of forward line really struggling lost his, he's lost his confidence uh, really struggling in that area of the pitch and even other players as well Cavard Loon's come back into the team he's been very quiet in eighth and that's a lad who's exceptional um, early part of the season he needs to find his form quick still feel as if Everton will have enough to, uh, to get out of it like I said probably similar to Manchester United more of a more of a good feeling when it comes to Everton but um, yeah it'll be fascinating there'll be more twists and turns between now and the end of the season it's great it's great we're still talking about uh, uh, a battle for the title a battle for fourth place and of course those five teams it looks like now battling for those uh, two remaining places which will keep them in the Premier League OTB AM we brought you live commentary over the weekend of both Chelsea uh, against Newcastle their 1-0 win and Arsenal's 2-0 win against Leicester on Sunday on uh, off the ball on News Talk. Kenny Cunningham called Arsenal's win for us alongside Nathan. We'll bring you all the rest of Kenny's reaction at half past nine this morning or you can listen in the OTB football podcast feed now but at 11 minutes past eight this morning here on OTB AM which is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. I'm delighted to say we're turning our attention to a routine win for Ireland. wasn't quite routine really. It was a bit of a roller coaster against England and uh, Alan Quinlan is with us. Alan, good morning to you. Morning, Ger. How are you? When it got to 15 all, what did you think was going to happen? Um, that's a good question. It wasn't very comfortable for Ireland. I think they were disjointed and a bit ragged at that stage. Um, I was pretty confident that um, they would find a little bit of composure and calmness and, and get the next score and they did that. Look, it was probably the emotion and, and intensity that England brought and um, was very impressive and they made it very difficult for Ireland at, at, at that stage. It was it was certainly pretty nervy. That emotion and the celebrating of every penalty and every scrum, like I can see exactly why England were doing that and it seemed to have an impact. It certainly spoke to me of a team who believes in their coach, who wasn't like laying down, who wasn't you know, not playing for him. So all the stuff about the disharmony in England, that all seems to be nonsense, is it? I wouldn't say there's disharmony. I think uh, they, they seem seemed like they they stuck together and they reacted to to the sending off and the pressure they were under. Um, it's strange when, um, and I mean this, I don't mean this disrespectfully, but when you read a lot of English journalists and English ex-players saying they were incredibly proud of the team and and that was a brilliant performance from England. It's a little bit strange, isn't it? Certainly from being Irish and having an Irish team and tricking and winning. Um, it's kind of strange where they are at the moment and the uncertainty that's that that's with there with their team at the moment. Um, but yeah, they looked like they, they wanted a... You know they put up a, a massive fight, which which would be very pleasing for anyone involved in the English setup. Because I think um, after the sending off, and and if Caelan Doris's try is given, you think Ireland could really run away with this, and it could be one way of traffic. But 
Um, it happens. I've been on teams before where you've gone down to 14 or you've been reduced to man and it does spur you on and it makes you react. And I think they can certainly take a lot from that point of view. They still have issues from an attacking point of view and and, and where they're at. Um, I agree with Johnny Sexton. Ireland would have lost that game 12 months, two years ago. I think, you just going back to your first question, the composure they showed was was very impressive. And at no stage did they panic. I think if some of the passes kind of stuck earlier on in the game, it, it could have been a bigger scoreline. And there were, there were issues for Ireland. We, I know you'll probably ask me about them in a second, but uh, I suppose from an English point of view, you're not clutching at straws. You have to take some positives and um, that desire and fight, you can accept that. And, and that's what English people are probably accepting that's today. Scrum. Like it was, I, I know the refereeing, um, we can get into this now if you want, but what, what were you going to... Well, no, uh, when you're talking about the passes not sticking, like is it, when you look at this and the, the sloppy Irish performance, which it was, which still results uh, in a game that they won by 17 points in Twickenham, is, is that not just a, a part of the, the, the stakes of having the extra man or the pressure of having an extra man? And they've come out on top in that game. The next time that happens, they're like, right, OK, we know what it's like to have the extra man. We know what it's like to have that expectation on us. And a few more of those passes stick. There's a, 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 a less nervousness around the performance the next time that happens. The experience of that certainly will stand them, uh, stand to them. Um, I, I think you saw from the Italian game on, you know, when we're playing against 13 men, you think, uh, I think mentally the Irish team thought they could, you know, run around the Italians and there'd be loads of gaps and there's always going to be a reaction. It's the same in any sport. And um, you'd be very, very disappointed if you were the opposition coach when uh, to, if that happens to a team that they throw in the towel. I think um, an Englander, you know, they have a lot of top class internationals there and, and British and Irish lines and, and they dug in there and, and showed a great fight. From an Irish point of view, of course they learn from that. They've got to find a way to, to, to control the tempo and, and and pick up the tempo of the game and be accurate and not force passes because if you're down numbers and you're defending and you, what, what you want the opposition to do is make a mistake somebody shoot out of line, make a big tackle, get a lift from that, a bit of energy. And they continuously did that. And Ireland kind of forced some of the passes a little bit, whereas it probably would have been more beneficial to hold on to the ball and keep building and building and building. Um, so it's something that, um, of course, I think they'll learn from. And it wasn't Ireland's best performance. Um, so um, Ireland can take so much from that game as well. And, and you know, if we had this perfect performance that we won by 25 or 30 points and were dominant for, for the 80 minutes, um, we'd have other issues with that. Uh, we'd be blaming the sending off. So, of course, our England showed a massive amount of fight. But I think Ireland definitely need to learn from that situation. Where is the space? What kind of process and what kind of change attack do we, we need to have? Um, how can we, we be ultra-efficient to keep the ball because if you keep the ball for a long 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 period of time the space is going to open up somewhere it happens when there's 15 on 15 and I think Ireland just tried to got little half breaks offloaded out of the tackle weren't ruthless enough and efficient enough certainly when, when they got into good areas What happened in the scrum in your view? Um, in my view and I watched it back about five times and obviously I'm uh, open to, to people having a different opinion. I'm sure they will have. I think uh, there was probably two out of six were penalties to England. Um, 
two or three of them could have been penalties to Ireland and there was certainly one of them that was just should have been reset. Um, I haven't got the pictures here to show you and show the viewers and show you the angles, but um, England were pushing after the ball, after the engagement uh, in every scrum. They were crabbing to the left and then running around the corner. Like, it's very, very hard to do anything about that on, on, from an Irish point of view. And they are a very powerful scrum. Genge is incredibly strong and and physical and powerful. And, and Sinclair is as well um, a good scrummager. But the question I'll ask is how... That's never happened to Ty Furlong before. There's nothing he could have done. Um, Genge was running around the corner... And then Tom Curry or the other flankers were sliding up the side and he was getting shoulders into the side of the ribs. So I thought Matthew Reynal, um it's hard when it happens. It hard, it's hard to change it. Um, the perception goes into the referee's head. Um, and, you know, England were, were, you know, they're a very, very powerful scrum. Ireland are missing Andrew Porter and Ronan, um, and Ronan Kelleher, which they were a big loss. Um, but... It just kind of capitulated and went to that stage where Matthew Reynal just kept awarding England all the time. And, and they weren't all penalties. I think two of them were penalties. And there's no way Ireland scrum um, will capitulate like that six times in six penalties. I don't agree with them. And I watched them back countless times. And I would urge any of the commenters, commentators who are going to join in and, and say I'm wrong, w- watch them again and watch the angles, watch the overhead camera. And look at the angles that, that at times Genge and other occasions, Sinclair, where their hips are and what angle they're going in at. Um, but I think, um, again, you're talking about a learning curve. Ireland will learn from that. And, you know, particularly Dan Sheehan as a hooker, um, there's a lot of pressure on him. He's big, he's tall, um, and they've got to find a way to maybe stay a bit tighter and, and uh, and change that picture a little bit when a team are kind of running, moving around the corner. They didn't just run around the corner. They moved around the corner and then drove at a different angle, which is, it, it's, it's hard to do anything about if the, if it's not refereed correctly. So, um, and I spoke to a lot of people on this yesterday. And as I said, I watched every scrum numerous, numerous times. And I think if Matt Reynell looks back at those scrums and in his review, um, he get different feedback on those scrums. Um, <laughs> you could see in the aftermath that the Ireland coaching ticket were very clearly saying, we have a Razzie-style video ready to go, we won't be leaking it, but we're going through the right channels, but we will be highlighting all of the issues. I mean, Tyke Furlong did say it in the middle of the game. <clears throat> when this is happening, is there anything else that you can do to... I think being a bit cynical yourself and getting your, 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 your wing forwards to maybe slide off the prop and, and actually drive up into that English wheel um, may help a little bit. I probably have done it before when I've been in, you know, play, played matches. Um, again, it's something that maybe they need to be ready to do because other teams will try and do it now. And then it's the perception of what the referee will think the next time. But I would ask the question, I would ask people to look at this. How many of those six penalties were England actually going legitimately straight? How, how many... Every scrum twisted to a point and then the, the drive came on at a different angle. There was no scrum where, um, maybe one of them, where they got a shunt on and I think Dave Kilcoyne lost his feet, um, which can happen to any prop. But 
look, it's uh, Matthew Proudfoot, their scrum coach, I think, had a tactic and sometime everyone kind of has tactics and scrums as well about moving their feet a little bit, getting a little early hit, whatever the case may be. Um, and their tactics worked for them. And then it's, it just went to the point where Match and Renal had this perception in his mind that England had this dominant scrum. And there's, look, they probably would have had Ireland under pressure anyway, even if the scrum stayed square. But there's no way Ireland's scrum is that bad, even without Porter and Kelleher. So when you kind of consider that in the context of everything, like is that is that not this massive kind of ray of hope for, for Ireland over the next little while because what the criticism has been in the past is that Ireland go to Twickenham or some other place in the Six Nations have a big win on the scoreline and not much is learned. The, the the feet aren't on the ground anymore. Ireland get carried away. It feels, certainly this morning, as if it's the exact opposite of that, that Ireland have got the win and are doing anything but, but getting carried away. In fact, England are, are, are the ones who are, who are probably reflecting on this in a more positive light. They're right to reflect on it because you have to find some positives in fairness. But from an Irish point of view, I think, um, you know, you go back to the Grand Slam winning match. Um, it was a fantastic performance and a great win um, over in, in, in Twickenham. Um, struggled a, a number of times on three occasions there, got, got well dominated and beaten. And we go there this time and come away with, 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 with a bonus point win. Um, people say the game was ruined with the sending off it wasn't ruined um, it probably hampered England and and changed the game would we got the same sort of excitement um, maybe we're better off playing against 15 players and, and, and winning those games you're damned if you do and damned if you don't but look it wasn't it wasn't uh, Ireland's best performance and I, I, you know probably the thing that stands out to me when I looked at the stats and went back on it is 17 turnovers and that tells you a story that you know, Ireland were a little bit sloppy at times. And sometimes that comes down to brilliant pressure. And England put them under a lot of pressure, which is totally understandable. Um, so I think Ireland can take a fair bit from that. And nobody, nobody's going to get too carried away and say we're going to win a World Cup here because um, I think it's just, it's a very important, important victory. And I said it before the game, mentally for these players, um, the result is there now and people can debate why and how and what happens. Um, but I think from an Irish point of view, it was a big step forward for this group and uh, a really important one. When we're talking about not winning this game in the past, is it like in under the current coaching ticket or is, are they actually, when they talk about it, do they mean that in the previous coaching ticket when if we'd gone a man up we would have kept box kicking and not held onto the ball and not tired them out and therefore not won the game I, I wasn't quite sure I understood exactly I think I, I think a bit of both sure. I think probably in, re, in, in more in recent times maybe up to that turn that we saw last year I think um, it comes down to confidence when you're a player out in the field and there's pressure on it's how you deal with that pressure in your head and how you find a little bit of calmness and a few leaders to speak up and 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 react and and keep it keep 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 your composure. I think the reaction in France in Paris would suggest that they're pretty mentally strong and in a good place because that was a game that could have really got away from them as well and, and the reaction was superb. Um when they chased that game and, and got it back to one point against France. Um, I think the the, the same. I, I was impressed with the mental calmness um, when England got back to fifteen all on Saturday. Um, just about um, 
you know, keeping keeping calm, no panic, and try and get up there. And then, you know, the Jack Conan try was, um, you know, obviously vital. And 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 I just think the reaction for the last ten minutes was was very very important and telling. And you could probably sense that it was going to happen. You asked me a question to start. How did I feel when I was fifteen? All I thought it was. I didn't feel great about that, to be honest. And I think a lot of English people would have been very enthused. But there was there was a kind of part of me thought, yeah, just just take control of the game. Even if you get a couple of penalties here and just move move away and win the game by three or six points. Um, England never really looked like winning the game. And I know it was, they were hampered by the 14 points. But they never... And any sustainable pressure in our line, they never looked like um, you know s- scoring tries from out, out, out from distance. Um, they had, I think, six clean line breaks. Ireland had t- up and, up near twenty. Um, very very impressive with, with 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 finding the space and the accuracy. Uh, but again, just that last pass, and and they could have been more ruthless. And that's one thing they've got to learn from this is. Taking your opportunities, um, they've got to be better at that, much better at that. Because when you go to a World Cup in in eighteen months' time, there might be one chance. If you get into that situation with New Zealand or France, France, there might be one chance in the game, and you've got to make sure that you take it. So there's no guarantee we will. And and we keep talking about the World Cup. It's still going to be incredibly difficult for Ireland to go past, even get to a quarterfinal, or go past it. Um, and it's all part of that learning curve. So I think they're in a good place mentally. Do we have concerns about uh, front row depth, more depth in the second row, um, the halfback situation, a little bit more depth there, and, and the players behind Johnny Sexton getting up another level? Of course, but you know we're in a good, decent position at the moment. I think, and hopefully, you know, we're in a, we're in a stronger position when we go to that World Cup situation. What changes are you looking to make this week? Um, I'm not sure I haven't reflected on the changes to the game yet but look I think Ian Henderson will come into the game um, he was a little bit rusty probably over enthusiastic um, gave away two penalties which um, probably he'd be disappointed at looking back um, I blame Neil Tracy on this show by the way for one of those the the latch and the um the latch and the line out to help your the extra ballast in the mall. It was something that he had shown and highlighted on his pick six. Uh, it wasn't pick six, obviously. It was side five, side five. Um, about two years ago, it's been an Ireland tactic where you do kind of just illegally nudge in the wrong side, and the referees have obviously gotten onto it and gone. Sorry, lads, that's the second time we've done that. The Six Nations, stop doing it. Yeah, everyone is checking that up, and um, I think the one where Atoje comes in and in, in, in the line out and holds holds the holds the the ball up and forces them all as well as something that would be disappointing where where the blocking was there but look he's an incredible player Maro Toje really really devastating and if you look at what he did when, when Gary Ringrose picked up the ball at the Rook um, when Caelan Doris's try was disallowed but he saved a try there basically um, there was a time where you couldn't put your hand through and and grab the ball or, or or play the scrum halves hands, you can now when he picks up the ball. There was a bit of debate about that. And what he did was was um was legitimate. Um he's a brilliant player. But Ian Henderson I think um you know he's a great player for Ireland, has been. 
Um, but those two penalties would be disappointing for him. He, he'll obviously come in. Um, do you start Kilcoyne over Keane Healy because it's Scotland? I don't know, possibly. Um, and Jack Corner will certainly be uh, knocking on Andy Farrell's door this week. Um, not literally, but uh, he'll be in his mind about the performance and the impact he made when he came off the bench. But other than that, I think, um, well, Robbie Henshaw, how, he was outstanding, wasn't he? You know, I think he, that's a true, true kind of warrior performance coming on there. Um, showed his experience, showed his toughness, um, made some great carries there, even when a couple of balls went loose in the ground and got over the gain line and, and was really, really important. But it's a good position because, you know, Bundyaki and Robbie Henshaw, it's hard to separate them. They're, they're both brilliant players. You'd love to have that kind of, um, that same competition in, in other areas. Um, the back three were outstanding, weren't they? So I don't see any changes there. So I see minimal changes. Maybe Robbie Hench and Jack Conan uh, may come to mind. I'm just looking at the, the score when we played them in 2020 in Twickenham. It was 24-12. I don't know if everybody remembers this game, but Ireland scored a try like deep, deep, deep into um, uh, injury time at the end of the second half to make it vaguely respectable. So we absolutely got annihilated by an England team and it's not a yeah. million miles from there's a few players like so Herring started but Healy started Devin Toner started CJ Stander started Conor Murray started Stockdale and Larmer but apart from that everybody else like is it's just half the team sure you named <laughs> yeah but it, in fairness it is but uh, like Roland Keller was on the bench um, yeah, Caelan Doris yeah, was on the course. bench you know and it wasn't like they were like, like they're not close to the squad or whatever you know obviously but, but gone. what do we expect going to Twickenham any year no matter how good we are it's always going to be tough it's always going to be tough going to Paris where you know we're, we're, England and France should always be the top two teams they have more players bigger leagues bigger, bigger pools of players to pick from um, so you know we shouldn't be finding reasons uh, to be negative around the team here. I think given, you know, you look at the the mistakes that were made and maybe things they need to be better at and, and Ireland have to be incredibly efficient no matter when they're playing the top teams in the world because we're never really going to overpower a team and uh, be, be, uh, be bigger than them or more physical than them. But there's a lot to be really pleased at. Um, the way Ireland stuck to the, the plan of still trying to find space, moving the ball, the accuracy needs to get a little bit better on some of those passes. And, you know, when the opposition analyse Ireland, they're going to try and break them down and not let them get into multi-phase. So there's a lot to be pleased about, but certainly um, it's it's it was a fantastic win in the end. Uh, nervy in the middle. And maybe if you're being critical, Ireland should have been more ruthless and, right. and, and had it made it more comfortable for themselves. All right. Alan, good stuff. Thanks a million. We'll talk to you later in the week. Cheers. Cheers, lads. Thanks. It's Alan Quinn in there. Time for the papers. There are so many idiots out there, so many spoofers. There's a lot of horse. <laughs> I think he's a total spoofer. What do you mean, a spoofer? He's a bullsh. Ah, no, I'm a, Come on, don't, don't be. No, I'm not. Yes. No. <laughs> All right, time for us to take a look at the uh, newspapers this morning. We can start with um, otbsports.com. Uh, you saw a bit of that Burr camp in him today. Oh, Kenny Cunningham getting getting the Arsenal fans excited about Martin Odegaard. Dubner back. It had a championship feel to it. Uh, that is the game yesterday. It was so emotional. This is Andrei Yarmolenko having scored 
for West Ham against Villa. Great little finish, and then obviously uh, he's in tears on the pitch and gives a fairly amazing interview in the aftermath of the game to uh, Sky as well. There's player ratings from the game, so we're going to bring you through the uh, back pages of the papers. To start with the English ones. Pressure on Jones despite battling display. For all their guts, this England is not yet a good team, says Owen Slot. Brave players deserve better than wild inconsistencies of Jones at Stuart Barnes. Chelsea may not be able to pay wages. Thomas Tuchel says, I'll drive to France for the Lille tie if needed. Um, there was some speculation yesterday that actually they've already paid their travel bills for the rest of the year and so they will be able to travel. So I don't Poor know. Chelsea. Uh, let's win this. Farrell wants Ireland to finish with a flourish. That would be good. Uh, Dublin's league win accompanied by silence. So the other story that happened over the weekend, almost all of the managers backed up the GPA and decided that they wouldn't do post-match interviews with media as a measure of support for the GPA's stance in their uh, ongoing row with the GA about funding, uh, in particular expenses. Uh, a few managers obviously decided they didn't care about that or they weren't asked or decided that they were asked and uh, we don't know what the story is, but most of the managers didn't speak to the press yesterday. Uh, it was so emotional for me. It's so difficult thinking about football because every day the Russian army is killing Ukrainian people. This is Andrei Yarmolenko yesterday reminding us all that we are very privileged to be um, sitting watching sport on our couches. There's no doubt I stay. Tuchel vows to stay with Chelsea until the end of the season. And Rachel, Rachel Blackmore adds X Factor to Cheltenham Festival. That's the back of the Guardian. Uh, Tuchel calls for greater scrutiny of owners. He's calling for it this week, just not last week. Uh, Jones, as Eddie Jones says, the pressure is all on France and Raducanu beaten by world number 79 is the back or the front of the Telegraph. The uh, the other ones, Triple Crown, now the target after Twickenham Triumph. They do actually have a trophy for the Triple Crown, don't they? There's like a shield or something. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, like, it's, a, tri- be, it's a Triple Crown trophy. There shouldn't be, though. Why not? Because it's not like it's like a special prize. Ireland can do. This is elite sport, right? This isn't this the school sports day. You Ar- don't get participation trophies. Ireland can do the treble this year, the Millennium Trophy, the Centenary Quack, and the Triple Crown. <laughs> is it Quack? Quake? Quash? Quash? Is it? Real men don't eat quash. Um Tuchel pledges to see out season. The crisis hit Chelsea and uh, Dublin find their voice at last as they look to keep status. Did we not get a trophy for beating Wales or Italy, actually? Desi didn't speak. Um, uh, I mean, obviously Desi didn't speak. It would have been it would have been wild if Desi didn't help the GPA out. Uh, tears for fears. A tearful Andre Yarmolenko scored an emotional goal that's, uh, against Philly yesterday and that's his um, celebration. Farrell puts the mute in. Desi Farrell didn't speak to the press after yesterday's first league win of the year, but the Dublin boss did talk to his county's own media outlet, Dubs TV. Um, yeah, some county managers, including Kerry's Jack O'Connor, Monaghan's Seamus McEnany, and Galway's Porrick Joyce, did speak to the media. But, yeah, Joyce obviously not a fan of the GPA. Uh, I have no interest in the GPA, I never had. It's beyond my pay grade talking about the GPA, to be honest. So I don't know, uh, was his uh, response when asked. But it's not about the GBA, it's about his players. Yeah. It's your players who who are not getting their expenses. Right? Yeah. That's the whole point. Who are not getting what they think they're due. Like, it's not, you're, you're either in support of your players or you're in support of the central body of the GAA. And that's why, that's why I'm surprised that any manager would ultimately go against their players. Yeah. Yeah, it, it's it's an odd one to be honest. I, like I, I thought that there was just kind of like a, a sense of maybe not realizing the 
uh, the, the nature of the situation that maybe maybe a few managers were kind of very focused on training and they kind of like dropped the ball a little bit at the weekend but now it feels a few people just aren't on board Anthony Moyles is with us this morning Anthony good morning to you how are you? Morning gents how are we doing? We are just talking there about the managers and some of them talked to the media most of them didn't um, what the direct quote there from Park Joyce was uh, sorry two seconds uh, I have it here I have no interest in a GPA I never have it's beyond my pay grade talking about the GPA to be honest so I don't know when asked about the expenses issue that was his response but he did talk to the media although it seems as if the GPA asked the managers not to talk to the media it's kind of it's like I mean it's not really beyond your pay grade is it? it's beyond mine uh, Jer. <laughs> <laughs> Ah, look, I think there's, there's always been this really weird relationship with 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 some people and the, you know, and 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 the um, the GPA in the sense of you have a situation where, um, sorry, the situation where say even like O'Rourke, I saw a clip of O'Rourke last night on 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 the Sunday game. You know, Tom Parsons was hardly looking at him, and O'Rourke has been a guy who's probably poked the bear an awful lot with regard to the GAA in various different articles. Some kind of fellas would think that the GPA are, are overstepping their mark. They're getting involved in too many areas. Um, but like the ultimate thing in here is is there was there was a contract which was there. Uh, there was an agreement which was there. It, it changed for COVID, which you can understand, right? Um, but the agreement was that once we got back to um, you know a, a a a normality with regard to playing and training and everything else, that the the agreement that was in place before would, would be reverted back to and it hasn't been reverted back to and I think the GPA are well within their stance and the players are obviously very annoyed and very frustrated that this is going on so like I mean the GEA rather than letting this thing go on and just kind of trying to I suppose hold the GPA off uh, um, at arm's length need to get a grasp of this because to be fair to them they seem to be you know emboldened by this the GPA and they seem to be you know well you know they're, they're willing to probably go to the next level which you would imagine is some kind of a, 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 a I don't know if there's going to be an all out strike but certainly there's going to be some type of action yeah well let's wait and see exactly what happens and we'll come back to that because uh, there's plenty of actual football to talk about at the weekend uh, I, I mean I started off on Friday by saying we never talk about me let's talk a little bit about me because they were pretty good yeah, yeah, they were. Um, yeah, they were. They, 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 they won the game in the first half, Jer, really, you know, playing against the Breeze, um, which is always, you know, pretty ferocious and having, even on a, even on a calm day, uh, it, it can be bad enough. So, you know, they were, I suppose, first thing for them, they were playing at home. Second thing, you know, they, 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 as I said, they played really well against the Breeze, moved the ball well, ran at angles, got some nice scores. You know, Harry Hogan and goal has just been a revelation. Um, the way he strikes the ball is impeccable. You know, he's a left-footed kicker. He literally takes two steps, be it on kickouts um, or indeed his free-taking. And he's, you know, unerringly accurate. Um, I think he got five in a row or maybe six in a row. He missed a couple then, but he probably could have ended up with eight or nine scores, uh, which is unbelievable from from, from a goalkeeper. Um, as I said, you know, he has that strike where he just stands behind it and bang, you, you, you know, you're in no doubt um, so me played well but Cork were absolutely you know they, they were desperate Jer. like really really poor um, 
a lack of intensity, a lack of tackling, um, single single kind of a lot a lot of individual stuff. You know, even in tackling, a lot of individual man on man, no guys helping each other, no communication, and then completely like with a breeze isolating guys up in the forward line like Hurley giving them the ball and then no runners off them like you know forwards gathering the ball inside with maybe two mead men on them um, they might get away from the mead man and then still still no cavalry no no one coming to support and you know like I mean very very frustrating now it's it's funny you know I thought about it last night and I was thinking to myself geez if Maybe the best thing for Cork would be, and I'm not sure about this, but I don't know if they if they meet Kerry in the in the in the monster. But maybe the best thing for them would be to meet Kerry and get an absolute annihilation because that's what it would be. Um, and then it might get people in the Cork County Board or whoever in the county to actually stand up and get a hold of this thing because I feel sorry for for for, for the players. I feel sorry for what's going on. You can see that they're trying, um, but at the same time, it was it was really bad. So on one side, it was good for me that they got a win at home. Uh, it'll boost confidence. They've got a number of players back, like Brian Menton, uh, and a couple of guys came back in who did well. Morris played well up front. Uh, Tomas O'Reilly played really well at centre-half forward. I think that's a position for him. He's big and strong, well able to win breaks, uh, and is a good passer of the ball. So I think that's a position that they found. But at the same time, Jerry, you have to look at the opposition and go, you know, Cork were, were very, very poor. Much better in the second half, to be fair to them. But at that stage, the, the, the game was up. Is it a situation where Keith Rickon is potentially going into this with his eyes wide open and knows that the team wasn't good enough last year and is going to need to throw players into the deep end immediately and experience a relegation or two? Well, maybe hopefully not two relegations, but experience a relegation to Division 3 and slowly build from there? Yeah, I don't know, Owen, to be honest with you. Like, I mean, you know, we're talking about Cork here. Um, you know, and you look at the, the, the playing population, you look at the size of the county, you look at everything. Now, of course, you, you, you marry that up with the fact of it's the football has always been the poor cousin, you know, and sometimes when... You know, more than more than not, when the hurling is going well, most of the focus goes there. And you would imagine most of the focus, you know, I don't know this for sure, but there's always been talk that most of the focus from, say, the county board um, would go there. And even with regard to fixtures and different stuff from a, from, from a club point of view, um, some of the players would be, the football players would be very, very, uh, I suppose, annoyed and aggravated. It just seems like the poor cousin to me. Um the, the 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 slide you know people always will say you know if they come up against Kerry in the championship oh there'll be a big performance in them I just don't see it I just don't see how they would be able to contain Kerry and as as I said I think it would be I think it would be a very very scary proposition for them because yesterday I watched them um, and there was very very little for about forty odd minutes and even when they started to tackle me a bit more with a bit more intensity and they got stuck in a bit more and they showed a bit more passion. They still were pretty devoid of ideas up front. Um, the second half suited them a bit more. They had a bit more of a running game. But I don't know. I don't know. On like, I mean, no manager wants to go in and say, "Listen, you know what? We're going to blood players and we're going to get relegated." Like, ultimately, you want to blood them and you want to see a reaction and you want to try to get a couple of scalps um, and get a couple of performances. But you know, uh, he, he's it, it's it's a very very tricky situation for them now. Um, very tricky situation for them, and, and and I suppose Mead were not lucky, but it was it was it was fortunate that they met a team who were also lacking in confidence. Um, and and once Mead got the bit of run on them in the first half and opened up a bit of a gap, you, there was really only going to be one winner in that game. 
All right, let's talk about the Division 1 games then. Um, let's start with the best team in the country at the moment, and that's Kerry. Grinding it out against Mayo in difficult circumstances without Shawnee O'Shea, uh, without Paul Murphy. Um, how, how will they feel after that match in terms of their All-Ireland credentials and everything that we... All the questions that we've had about them over the last couple of seasons? I think they'll be frustrated, actually. Um <clears throat> I think I think I tell I tell you what what are glaringly obvious to me is 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 the loss of O'Shea. Um, I thought they were a little bit rudderless uh, in their half forward line. Um, I thought they were now what what I mean there is I mean at that pivotal eleven position. Um, I'm not saying I can't remember the guy who came in for 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 O'Shea. Sorry, Jack his name Savage. Is, Yes, correct. I'm not saying that he had a poor game, but he's just not showing O'Shea. Um, and you know he hasn't got that ability to. You know, to find the pass, but to also drive the players, and he's he's not a focal point really for 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 the team. So what happened was, I thought there was a lot of kind of there was a lack of urgency sometimes when they did get the ball in. Well, it was usually Paddy Clifford trying to find David inside, um, and you know he 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 was killing the May, the male uh, uh, cornerbacks and fullbacks. And he was playing really, really well. And he put kind of Kerry on his shoulders for the first half, certainly, um, and for most of the game. But it's it's something whereby if I was in opposition, you know, you're kind of saying, right, this is this is this is something that we can look on. If even if O'Shea is playing, we need to make sure that we do our best to try to lessen his influence as much as possible. Now that's easier said than done, of course. But you have to say, right, we're going to get in his face. We're going to follow him everywhere because. You could really see from his absence that that kind of quarterback idea was 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 missing, um, and hence I just thought it was a bit of a lackluster performance from Kerry. Um, their defense was good again. You know, I thought we we've spoken about this before how they've sorted themselves out. I thought they were mean. I thought they were you know decent tackling. I thought the structure was very good. They kept that central column very very tight, um, and more often than not, Mayo lads just kind of ran down cul-de-sacs got stripped of the ball. Um, and I think really Kerry probably should have won that game by more. Um, but in hindsight, then when you, when you come to the end of it, Mayo had opportunities to level it and even had potentially an opportunity to win it. Um, like, I mean, Paddy Durkin made a couple of, you know, wild shots near the end. Um, but yeah, from, from, from a Kerry point of view, I'd say it's frustration, Ger. You know, I really do. I, I think it was, I think I think they would come away from that game and say, well, actually, hold on a second. We need to knuckle down a bit more. And we're not really where we thought we would be because, you know, Mayer were good, but they weren't. They, their forward set wasn't great. Like, Donegal O'Connor had a poor game. Um, very, very, very quiet. Uh, really, they 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 nearly they ne- the whole game nearly for them rested on O'Donoghue's shoulders. Now he played very very well, won his own ball, took his own scores, kicked his frees well, and he really impressed me. I wasn't massively a big fan of his, but I thought on uh, on Saturday he 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 really grew actually, you know, and he really came of age. I think Harry would have been happy enough with the draw actually at the end if it wasn't for the the too late freeze gifts uh, given to them by Ed Noche. But but I think he thought Ed Noche overall had a had a good day. I think O'Shea had one of his best games I've seen him in a long, long time. Um, I really do. He, he he hardly ever wasted a ball. And I thought he was unlucky. Now, yeah, the one to drag around, and I thought the one previous to that, you know, where I can't remember someone jumped over his foot, kind of, I, I thought he was harsh, harsh done by on that one. Um, but I thought he had a really, really good game. He was kind of carrying the ball out from the full back line. 
and he was doing it sometimes before he's done it kind of in second gear whereas this time he was actually really trying to inject as much pace as he can um, and once he was getting into space and he gets his head up all the time and he, he's a very heads up type of player and his hand passing is excellent um, and, and also you know he he attracts players to him then because fellas want to get a hit on him so fellas come at him to hit him and he has the physical strength to either power through them or slip hand passes off and go again so I was actually I was mightily impressed by him actually I thought he had a very very powerful game um, and him doing that role actually would allow the likes of Keegan and O'Hara uh, and these guys to actually take a bit more of a break and when they go then to be a bit more effective rather than having to go every time from the full back line um, you know with, with say the likes of Ruan having to go every time from midfield so um, yeah I, I think Horan you know whether he whether he plays that role again or not I thought he was I thought he was really really good on Saturday Okay a quick word about the dubs we've been saying don't write off the dubs uh, everybody was Right off the dose, but they're they're not back back, but they're definitely all Ireland contenders, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, look, I think we we spoke about this on Friday, Jared, and I was just saying that you know if they go up there and they win this game, it's an enormous fill up for 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 the team and 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 for Desi and everyone else that will feel that okay, we've come up here and we've taken the scamp the scalp of the All Ireland champions. Now, I suppose if you if you if you strip that back. What happened? Well, they got a number of the players that we discussed that were due to come back back. So straight away, those guys, you can see like literally in an instant when they get the ball, their DNA uh, is is so primed to do the right thing with the ball more often than not. So James McCarty gets the first ball. You see him, if you watch the video of the game, he's standing, there's a bit of a free, he takes off, he burns his man, he runs beyond the player, he gets into possession, he touches the ball around three or four times, like, and he's just he just naturally fits back in, and he does the right thing with the ball. The same with Merchant, Robbie McDade, I thought, had an unbelievable game. He gives them that power and pace from the half-back line, which was missing in the last while, you know, where he's able to go beyond players and able to go beyond the opposition defence and really stretch them. And if you watch, they had so many attacks in that first half down that left-hand side. Like, they really obviously focused down there and they went down that stand side so much. Um, So, you know, they got players back. I still think there was a little bit of sloppiness in there. There was a couple of pot shots taken, less so than the last time. Um, Like, I think they hit 11 out of 17 in the first half. You know, I think the game, they could have been well out of sight. I think the game was pretty much over at halftime, obviously with the sending off, but they could have been way out of sight because they actually missed a couple of handy ones as well. But there 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 was a definite noticeable difference that they were trying to find the right guys with the ball I think it was around 13 or 14 minutes they went down the the, the left hand side and they they sought Costello out a couple of players Lahif had a had a ball or had the ball in his hands Scully had the ball but they sought Costello out they eventually gave it to Costello and I thought he was really really good at a time where the game was kind of only kind of finding its feet he he tore. He first thing he had in his mind was just run straight at Kerry uh, or straight at the Tyrone defence, cause guys to miss, uh, and he got some vital scores to kind of to kind of settle Dublin. So look, we've spoken about this. Um, they still have guys to come back. Um, are they are they the finished article? Not by not by a long shot, but I thought their defence was good. Um, I think Tyrone. Bar that spell in the second half where they kind of kicked a few scores, they never really looked like winning the game, to be honest. Yeah. Like, oh, we were saying earlier, you would make them favourites to win Leinster and they'd be a point or two point underdogs against 
Mayo and Kerry in an All-Ireland final if you had to price it up today. But that's it. That's how close they are, as opposed to this absolute crisis-torn, chronically mismanaged group that they've been painted by many. Yeah, I think so. You know, like... Look, people just wanted, I suppose, get a, you know get the story around them, and and it did. Like, I mean, I suppose if, if you know if you came over and watched the match and you'd never seen them before and you didn't know much about them and you watched them say against Armagh, you go, well, these guys are who? You know, they're meant to be what? Because they were disjointed, they were all over the place. But then you kind of have to look and look at the amount of players that they were trying to blood, uh, look at players who were necessarily playing out of position, getting game time in different areas of the pitch, yeah, um, and then. I mean, and of course, that, that's the thing. Like, you know, for whatever reason, Desi has no credit in the bank, even though he has won in All Ireland, and like they should have won the All Ireland semi final last year. But for whatever reason, his players couldn't manage a game winning situation to get themselves um, through after 76, 77 minutes. And then they would have been in All Ireland. Finally, would have been like, well, that's not bad considering the gazillion uh, All Ireland winners that they've they've lost. Like, I don't know. He's not a million miles away from where Jim Gavin was with a much better selection of players in his third season as the manager of the Dubs. Look, Jerry, you know, when you go in to manage a team and you've managed, especially, you know, Desi's job where he's coming in after, uh, you know, winning, obviously, the very, very successful situation that Gavin had. You know, and you look at Gavin after Gilroy, you have to bring something different. If you continue to do the same old, same old, and you continue to play in, in the way that the previous manager, the, the players will get absolutely sick, of, you know, to their teeth of it because they've been doing it for X amount of years. And players want to be challenged. Players want something different. Players want to hear not only a different voice, but they want to hear a different message. Um, and, and last year, I would say, you know, and even the... You know, probably previous to that, there was there was still a lot of remnants of the, of the Gavin era that they were kind of saying, well, listen, we're not going to throw it all away because it obviously works. But what we want to do is we want to try to put our own stamp on it over, over the next number of years. And I think this year especially, he has tried to do that with his backroom team to really kind of, I suppose, take a brave step and stick the chest out and say, no, this is how we want to play. And how that, how that is, is they're trying to move that ball f- much faster into the full forward line by kicking the ball. And they're trying to allow players the freedom, I suppose, to have shots. You know, I kind of, I, I looked at some of the games, um, uh, a lot of them over the weekend. And, and, and you know, I watched Donegal Mayo or Monaghan. And, and like I find myself watching Donegal, watching it, I, I record most of them because I can't watch them uh, live because they absolutely, I, I, I go bananas. I, I feel like just throwing my whatever boot at the TV. Um, or, or you can just fall asleep. You can go out and put the kettle on and come back in and they'd be probably still tipping the ball across their own 50. So you, you end up in a situation where you're saying to yourself, like, who's trying to play football here? And I don't care whether you're Mead or even Cork or you're, you know, Tipperary or you're Der- there's There's some teams who are trying to play the game in a positive fashion. And there's some teams who are still stuck three or four in that kind of era of three or four or five years ago, which is getting bodies behind it. That's all fine. But then slowly coming out. Like I watched the, the, the Donegal-Monaghan match. There's an unbelievable number of examples where they're coming out of defence. And instead of kick passing the ball into space, the player who say on the half forward line runs back towards the man, receives a hand pass off the man, off his shoulder, and then hand passes it back to the next defender coming out. So not only do you receive the ball, you actually go back 
20 yards from where you received the ball. So you're basically saying, well, we're going to start again. Now, that's fine. You know, it's a slow build-up. But it's absolutely, like, it, it's just it's just terrible football. So, you know, I look at Farrell and I look at what some managers are doing and I applaud what they're doing because I think the game, you know, you were ch- ch- chatting to Alan Quinlan there. Like, every game evolves. And I think Gaelic football, managers are going to have to start realising that actually, you know, we're, we have to be willing to do things. We have to have, say, instead of having one-off runners in the forward line, we have to have two guys. We have to have a situation like in the rugby that you're willing to do a handoff uh, and play the ball away out of the tackle, that you're willing to take risks, that you're willing as a halfback or, or, or a fullback to come up and take a shot because you've been training so much that you have the ability to do it. And, and because it, it, it's those key moments and the teams that actually get enough guys that are willing to do that and be able to execute those things at times of pressure they're the fellas that will win the championships and will win games that safety first idea of maintaining possession loads of possession you know crisscrossing across the field that 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 that's not going to win you it might win you some games but it's not going to win you the, the games to win in all ireland not not in my view all right anthony we leave it there thanks a million cheers cheers lads it's anthony Maud's giving us some thoughts on the weekend's getting football action is it is there an emergency power rankings required after yeah. like uh having a head of tip I think at half time and then get blitzed in the second half that was a huge win huge win for Tipperary yesterday uh, because obviously pre-season the expectation was that themselves and Cavan were going to get out of that division and things didn't go so well for Tip at the start beating Sligo beating Cavan they're massive wins back to back for them now so uh, and they needed to win yesterday I don't, I don't think um, it would have been good enough otherwise uh, just on the, the Dublin point like it's a very kind of like it's a simple one and it's it's not very incisive but I wonder if Desi Farrell has just kind of like looked at last year and said that didn't work we're going to do something different what we know from last year is that they were back training quite early obviously we had the situation uh, pre-Covid we know that they showed signs of not fatigue but of uh, maybe being kind of a little bit worn out uh, mentally at least in the Leinster Championship that the collapse in the second half against Mayo wasn't all that of a surprise I wonder have, has he analysed the curve that they went on last year and said we just went too early like let's not forget they were joint champions in the league last year this year clearly they're not going to be joint champions in the league they're not going to be champions they're not going to be in the, the, the final of the league uh, they've got lads playing club football over the last couple of weeks obviously James McCarthy played for, for Ballymun uh, a couple of weeks ago uh, Conor Callum played a challenge game that's that's where he got his injury that they've said to the league listen screw this this is not important whatsoever uh, even getting relegated to Division 2 not the end of the world we will be fine as long as we're right for championship and that's just that's it's as basic as that uh, that's one aspect of it I do think uh, it's not about the X's and O's it's about the Jims and Joes and they've had none of the players they haven't had that selection we've been like oh look at that who are these players it's like literally who are these players because mm. Not not very many people knew anything about the players who were being blooded. But now you're looking at the team coming back. Like Robbie McDay was an all star. Yeah. He was that good. Like people kind of underrate the COVID season that they won the All Ireland because it was COVID. But you were still playing intercounty, right? It was still one of the All Irelands that were crediting Limerick with winning, with being like the greatest team since the Kilkenny team. Like you have to give them credit for that. But the players that they were missing last year because of injuries or, or the disjointed nature I, I'm not saying they're brilliant I'm not saying they're going to be as good as uh, Dublin under Jim Gavin because they don't have the same playing pool but they do have loads of players who are really good still mm. who we're like oh that's not as good that player's not as good and it's like well actually okay so McDade is not quite as good a footballer as the footballer he's replacing in Jack McCaffrey but he's bloody good he was an all-star and he wasn't around last year for everything was he? Wasn't he injured he for was, most of it? No, he was. He was. There. He. I, I literally have it in front of me. He. Sorry, he came off the bench against uh, Mayo and again they lost. 
So I'm, I'm not sure was that uh, an injury based thing before that 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 led him into that. You see, the thing is, like me not having quarterfinals last year, I couldn't tell you what happened in the Leinster Championship. Yeah. So. Okay. Fair enough. It, uh, he's got. Um, he's still got players to come back in the forward line in Paddy Small and uh, in Khan, right? But the half the forward line yesterday was Howard, Bugler, Scully, Costello, Kenny and Rock. So now they've strengthened depth because they've got those two to come back. Yeah, I, obviously the depth is what it once was, but again, the bars are so unbelievably high and it, it's going to be important come the end of the championship. They're not going to need that depth for the first few rounds of the, of the, the Leinster Championship. No, and, and Lee Gannon only came off the bench in the 70th yeah. minute yesterday. He's been excellent. Like, R- rumours of the demise... That's it. That's yeah. all I'm saying. It's like the because everybody wants him, and it's really it's really easy to go. Oh, he's not. This is not the same coaching ticket. He's not as good as uh, the previous guy. He's not as good as the previous guy, and the manager's not as good as the previous guy. But actually, he's done a really good job in in integrating a new team because it is a, it is a new team. And let's just uh, let's just cool the jets. Well, the one thing you don't know is is about the manager. Like that, that's a very very hard thing to actually. Uh, evaluate like how good a manager Desi Farrell is it's much easier to look at the players and say they're not as good and, and that's all fair game but it's very hard to know how good a manager otherwise Desi Farrell is so uh, for criticising and, and saying that you know could there be a soccer style situation where Desi Farrell's neck is on the block at some stage of the season that that does seem to have been a bit of an over exaggeration at this well, point so first year wins in All-Ireland second year loses a, an epic semi-final and third year let's wait and see exactly the same course as Jim Gavin except they got blown out by Donegal essentially mm-hmm. when they were seven points to one up like it's almost exactly the same when you think about it they didn't get blown out uh, in the second half by Mayo they got blown out in, in extra time so maybe it's almost exactly the same I do well it's, I do think that's that people are looking at the 2013-14 Dublin team as a, as a much better team than this current exactly, Dublin team yeah. so, I so, mean, that so is it easier to do a good job with those players or is it easier to do a good job with these players mm-hmm. Which, who had the easier who had the better hand there well, obviously Jim Gavin did, and I but mean, Jim uh, Gavin's the greatest manager of all time. Uh, but and like, Desi's nowhere near him. You can't compare the two of him because this guy's a genius and this guy's not. But hang on a second. <laughs> but where's that? Where's yeah, like the, you're, you're, you're forcing me to argue for a point here that I don't actually believe in that uh, that, that that I don't believe Desi Farrell is a good manager. Things do I, don't, anyway. I don't know. I do it anyway. Yeah, true. Yeah, we do it all the time. OTBAM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish your day. I just do think it's been kind of very. Uh, this guy is great and this guy is not great because we've seen this guy be great. But actually, you know, there was an evolutionary process there where Jim Gavin obviously does become a great manager uh, but did have better players so four minutes past nine this morning here's what's on OTB Sports Radio for you today Colm Cooper is OTB Gold at one o'clock State of the Union at three o'clock Mount Rushmore is Cork at five OTB Gold is Jason Sherlock at six and tonight the show is live with Joe from seven up next we're crossing over to John Duggan at Cheltenham OTB AM alright it's time for us all to uh, brush up on our Cheltenham knowledge and I'm delighted to say John Duggan is with us. John, good afternoon to you. Good morning to you. How are you? Jer and Owen, good morning from Cheltenham. The when, calm before the storm, lads. When the does calm the, before the storm. When does the hat make its appearance? I didn't bring it. Right? It's like, uh, I just I, I, I decided the hat is going to be a social thing, lads. <laughs> I'm, I'm here for, for work. Uh, hard work, tipping winners. And, and like, I just was, there's too much luggage. And I, you know, it's been so bad, the weather in Ireland recently, that it's been, you know, you can't be wearing one of those hats of slashing rain. It's actually going to be good weather here this week. Right. Four millimetres of rain at the weekend. Uh, but it's, apart from Wednesday, it's going to be pretty dry here. So, and temperatures will rise. So the ground's going to dry out, lads. And we're looking forward to a great week. 275,000 people here for the week, 70,000 a day. Gold Cup Day has been sold out since January. Two years, as we know, since uh, we've had a festival with crowds. So let's get it on. I do think the crowds is going to have an impact on champions from the last season, this season, 
Like, we don't know. There's no obvious horses like LeBake who you're like, oh, that, that, you know, if he goes <laughs> off and he arrives, then away we go. But there, I definitely think it's going to have an impact. Afterwards, people will say, yeah, the horse got a little bit worked up in the parade ring or the horse didn't respond well to the, the atmosphere because, you know, last year it was, there were these little bubbles of Irish jockeys cheering home every winner and, and that was it. That was the only noise. Complete silence last year. And when you think about the stairs hurdle on Thursday, Florian Porter won it last year, is the favourite again. And this horse is a little bit quirky, gets on his toes a bit, as does Classical Dream, who has won here at the festival before and uh, has beaten Florian Porter at Christmas at Leopardstown. There are a couple of horses you think, how are they going to react to the preliminaries going around uh, the parade ring, the paddock, all the people cheering them on. And also John Bond, who's a great hope for England in the first one tomorrow, in the Supreme Officer's Hurdle, he gets a bit uh, sweaty. Uh, so he gets on his toes. So how will he react? Well, a lot of these horses, the worry is that they get too head uh, up, as it were. They, 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 they waste their energy before the, the race gets into, into full go. Um, but sometimes they can use that energy positively, just like a normal athlete would. Um, and when we talk about crowds there, it would be just great tomorrow to see Honeysuckle and Rachel Blackmore win for a 15th time under rules because Rachel, she had all those successes last year with no crowds. It'd be brilliant to see the roar that would go up if she won and if she's welcome back, you know. Yeah, um, you had you wanted to ask like, a little bit about the Ireland-England stuff. Yeah, well, like, I mean, the, the, the conversation around the, the, this festival, uh, John, at the moment, obviously you would have been covering it in the day of a, a, a three-day festival and there's some suggestion that it became bloated by becoming a four-day festival. And we'll get to the English-Irish stuff in just a moment, but this idea of a five-day festival has been mentioned now for, for quite some time. But what's the status of that and, and what's, what's the feeling on the ground there about how much that would kind of diminish the, the lore of this festival? Well, the status of it is that it's not going to happen next year, uh, but then it'll be under review after next year. So next year, 2023, will be a four-day festival. When they think about a Gold Cup day being sold out since January, 70,000 people, a lot of people coming down from London, uh, Thursday is going to be very busy. Uh, they've expanded the capacity here in the last few years since they redeveloped the race course. And now it's become a bigger, bigger thing. Like I go to London a lot and I'd be on the tube at Christmas time and you see the ads for Cheltenham. It's become more than just a racing festival. It's become a really big social thing in the uh, in the British sporting calendar. So you can understand why, like Royal Ascot, they will be uh, keen to have a fifth day. Obviously, these things are always financial. It's worth a huge amount of money to the local economy, to the jockey club. And you can understand the financial reasons for that. From a competitive point of view, it's, it's got the potential to dilute uh, a, a race meeting that really probably should be three days in terms of its quality. Like tomorrow in the Supreme Novices Hurdle, which was always 20 runners, the massive roar, the going uh, too fast over the first few hurdles. And, and it would be really just a, a cavalry charge. There's only what I'm looking here. Tomorrow, there's nine runners in it. There's only seven runners in the amateur chase, the last race. The Thursday, generally, since they brought the four days in, Owen, in 2005, has been a bit of a down day. But we kind of just uh, get air into our lungs in every way before we go again on the Friday. But um, there is a danger with these things that you dilute the quality of what you're offering with adding more races. And then on top of that, what you have is a situation where supposedly a lot of English trainers are looking at the challenges coming over from Ireland and saying, not for me, and focusing their uh, devotion on entry. Donald McCain, a classic example of that. He's trained 133 winners in the UK this season, more than any other trainer. He has got possibly one horse running at Cheltenham this week, and he's saving his firepower for entry. Because they know they just can't compete at the moment when you're looking at, if you're looking at the prestigious races, the champion hurdle tomorrow, Honey Suckle odds on favourites, the champion chase. Now, there is an English-trained favourite for that, Chishkin. 
uh, for Nicky Henderson. But we have an ergaman, Chuck and Persuade, put the kettle on last year's winner for Ireland. Then on Thursday, all the top horses are Irish trained, Florian Porter, Classical Dream. And then on the, on, the, on, on the Gold Cup day, there's only one English horse with a chance to protect her at, otherwise it'll be an Irish winner. So of the 95 runners tomorrow, lads, 49 of them are trained in Ireland, more than half. Yeah, look, the, the English-Irish thing, obviously, there's a, a popular campaign running at the moment uh, that kind of repeatedly points out England don't really care about that. That like, and It actually doesn't seem to matter that much, the England-Ireland thing. We get jingoistic about it. I just think it's a bit of crack. But actually, it's far more interesting this week not to chase patriotic money, but to follow the good tips. That's the, the advice is don't be just backing something because it's Irish. No, that's something you think is the best uh, chance in the race. Like John Bond, for example, tomorrow is a full brother to Duvan, trained by Nicky Henderson, who's a great festival record, owned by Jimmy Bowmanis, is English trained in inverted commas. Shishkin came from the Irish Point Field, uh, is trained by Nicky Henderson in England. Um, but I do think we're going to have a very good festival again for Irish trained horses. Uh, it was 23 winners last year out of 28. I don't think it'll be as high as that, but I'll, we'll definitely have more than the uh, UK-based trainers. But the Irish-English thing, I think... I don't even know if it's a thing anymore. Now, it was a really significant thing. Like, I remember in 1986, I was seven years of age, watched Dawn Run win the Gold Cup. It was the front story on the six o'clock news, the news story that Dawn Run, this horse, won at Cheltenham. And back then, there was very little for Irish to cheer about in the global sporting stage. Maybe John Tracy or Eamon Coughlin or a couple of triple crowns before the soccer team became something. You know, with a lot of people emigrating from Ireland in the, in the 80s, especially, who didn't want to. They moved to England. They worked here. And it was a sense of pride if, you know, Ireland were winning at Cheltenham. And that even goes back to the 1940s and Vincent O'Brien. When I came here first 20 years ago, I really felt like, even as a person, intimidated. There was a real underdog sense around the place. And if you have a few Irish winners, it would be a real thing that you'd be, you'd be feeling proud about. But Ireland has conquered Cheltenham. I've seen the whole change of it. Back from the 2005 when we had nine winners, uh, which was the best, I think, since probably 19... 19- 58 or something like that. Uh, and then it went to stage in 2013 where we had more winners than the English and to last year we had 23 winners. So Ireland has conquered Cheltenham as opposed to being competitive. And it's a very strange feeling. But uh, the Irish-English thing these days is, is not something that we need to prove anymore. The spectre of COVID obviously hangs over crowds at Cheltenham and that conversation around it. I presume there's going to be a, a much different vibe as, um, as you know, uh, things seem to have opened up quite significantly. Absolutely. I, I think the gap year helped. Uh, I think if there was a festival last year with some semblance of crowds, it would have been possibly controversial. We know, having covered a couple of years ago, uh, that I think the general consensus looking back is that the festival shouldn't have gone ahead. But I don't remember a phrase book or a handbook or a, or a guide for a 100-year pandemic that nobody lived through. So I think a lot of decisions were being made in England that were obviously seen to be wrong. Um, you know, I remember the atmosphere completely changing within a matter of days. Leo Varadkar made the announcement on the Thursday and it was just a case of the Friday. This thing shouldn't have been happening. And obviously, you know, there was uh, a pub landlords around here. My, my The people who I stay with have stayed with for a long time, like passed away from COVID and everything. And it was just a very worrying time for everybody concerned. So, um, look, it shouldn't have gone ahead. We know that now. Uh, last year it was it was behind closed doors. Uh, unfortunately, with the world at the moment, uh, Ukraine is dominating everything and uh, it's sometimes kind of hard to feel like, should you be enjoying yourself with what's going on in Ukraine? Uh, tomorrow, the uh, National Hunt Chase, uh, the Amateur Chase, is a, it's for the Red British Red Cross, uh, the Ukraine Appeal. People will be invited to donate here at the course this week. And um, 
life moves on in a, in a, in a way that is not necessarily great uh, with, with what's going on in the world at the moment. But COVID, I think, is in the rearview mirror at the moment here. OK. Tell us uh, five quick races to watch out for and why. The champion hurdle, obviously, on, on uh, Tuesday. Everybody's keeping an eye on that one. Yeah, tomorrow it's, what, half three. Honeysuckle, she's won 14 times out of 14. As I said, she's odds on in the betting. Uh, she's got everything, really. She she has a turn of foot. She's got a pace to burn. She showed that around the bend last year. She can also stay because she won the Maris Hurdle here over a further distance. Her last run at Leopard's 10 was a little bit um, workmanlike or um, whatever, the, whatever the phrase is because she wasn't brilliant from the last to the, to the line. But the yard hasn't been in the best of form this year. If you picked it a year for uh, something to happen to you, Henry de Bromhead had the most magical year last year. He, he, did the, he did the trifecta. So he had the champion hurdle, champion chase and Gold Cup winners. Then he had the first two in the Aintree Grand National. Like he just, he just it was a full house, he, he, royal flush. He, c- he couldn't do any better than that. Um, the only one I think that can put it up to Honeysuckle tomorrow, and I really hope she wins for the, for the image of the sport and for Rachel Blackmore to go back to back, is Appreciated, who won by 24 lengths in the novice hurdle uh, last year, the Supreme Novices hurdle, and hasn't been seen since. I trained by Willie Mullins. But I wouldn't be too worried about that because William Mullins wouldn't send the horse here if he didn't think the horse was right. And also, he sent her Quivega five times to win on her seasonal appearance at the Cheltenham Festival. So appreciated is in that. And there's a few five-year-olds. Only one five-year-old has won the champion hurdle since 1985. So that would be against the chances of Tio Poo and Zana here. But it's all about honeysuckle. If she performs to her best, she should win. Wednesday's champion chase and bumper day. Yeah, so we have Willie Mullins training 78 winners at Cheltenham, but never the champion chase. He's got to be Chishkin with one of his uh, two horses, and Ergerman, who we know jumps very well, and Shaq and Persois. The one question I would have is, and Ergerman and Shishkin, a lot of us saw that race at Ascot. It was deep ground. It was a tough race. Would it take a bit out of the paradigm? That's one thing I'd have to say. Shishkin can also hit a fence, but he's got a, a turn of foot that is really, really impressive. And he's also won here twice at the festival. Shaq and Persois has been a brilliant horse in Ireland, but has never seemed to deliver away from home. Was poor at Sandown earlier this season, was only third in this race last year. They might try and use his jumping to get an advantage, but at the moment he's got things to prove. So Shishkin and Ergman, Shaq and Persois, I'd be surprised if one of the three doesn't win it. The bumper was brought in here in 1992 because they wanted to give Ireland something because we had no winners at the festival back in 1989. And it's become a, a really... A, it's, it's, it's all about, about what I'm about with racing, the phone calls, the kind of the whispers, the, you know, is that, what's the potential of this thing? Um, it's a two-mile flat race, as we know, no hurdles or fences we jumped. Fasal Vega is a son of Quivega and has been exceptional at Leopardstown. But Redemption Day is Sable Mate, also won very easily the last time. And American Mike from the Gordon Elliott Yard, and Gordon's obviously back in this, the festival this year and looking to have a good week with Tiger Roll also on Wednesday. American Mike hasn't run since Christmas at Mavin but is also a very well-tatted horse. So that's the bumper on Wednesday. Okay, and the stairs hurdle on Thursday is the big race today? Yeah, that's the three-mile championship for hurdlers. I think this is open, Jaron Owen. Like, you got Flooring Porter, as we mentioned there, owned by lads uh, who are involved in the carpet shop and, uh, and a pub out west. Uh, great story. Gavin Cromwell trains that, but can be a bit uh, buzzy. Classical Dream, Champ, who used to be a chaser. Time Hill is a consistent horse. Royal Kahala, trained by Peter Fahey and Monaster Revan, who likes probably softer ground that he's going to get here. It's wide open, I think, that one. I don't think I've ever backed the winner of that race. I don't like that race. The Gold Cup? The Gold Cup, look, it's going to be an Irish winner, I think. Galvin is an improver for Gordon Elliott. Will stay the trip. Won a, a longer distance race last year. Be the Plutard at Christmas. A Plutard, I, I think, is the class horse in the race. Will he get the trip under Rachel Blackmore? That's the thing. And Manella Indo is coming back into form. Ran poorly at Kempton at Christmas. But Manella Indo is the defending champion. He'll definitely be one to have on the right side, I think, as will Album Photo. 
a 10-year-old though hasn't won the Gold Cup in 24 years, an album photo is rising 10 now, has only won, run once rather in, since, in Tremor since uh, he last ran in the Gold Cup. So maybe ages against him. So Galvin, Aplutar, Manella, Indo, probably the top three. I wouldn't be surprised if the winner comes from them. Let's get some Willie Mullins here. You've been talking to him. Uh, this is specifically about Tuesday's race and have a look. Hello, ho. Is it just a case of just keeping it simple and doing what you did last year? I hope so. <laughs> he looks like I think he's probably a banker in a lot of people's minds. Um, when you take it that you know people probably go to Cheltenham with two or three bankers, maybe you know, and, and they don't always win. So you know you've got honeysuckle, shack and pearls, oh, sorry, um, Alaho and maybe the horse in the bumper, you know, so maybe two out of those, two out of three usually get beaten, uh, you know, the week before Cheltenham, we all think this can't get beat, that can't get beat, but they do get beat, and that's why you have bookmakers, and, um, you know, hopefully he can repeat the dose this year. Is he your best chance, in your view? I imagine himself and Fasal Vega must rate our best chances, yeah. Where does Willie Mullins rank in the hat game, John? Better than me, right? Who who has who is who is known to be like the, the the most capable of rocking a hat in terms of? The, I think Willie Mullins. He's got a brown hat. Uh, it's he he's able to carry it off very very well. Okay. Uh, the hat I think I bought, which I actually bought here, I bought it for about twenty bucks. I think is a bit too big for me. Um, so look, I might buy another one. I, I might buy Jaron Owen. Actually, Jar, I might you know I buy the, like if I've got a good week, right? I've got a load of sturdy in my pocket. If I've got a good week here, I'll buy the pair of hats and go wear them for the uh, for the entry of the bunch of sand. Not preview. Not a hack guy. You need to know when you're not a hack guy. That's that's rule number one of. of Jerry, you a hack guy? Maybe you just never had. I'm a, I'm a beanie hat. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who are the other runners and riders then behind Willie Mullins for like being the top hat wearers at Cheltenham? Top hat wearers. Nicky Henderson wears a Nicky good Henderson. hat, generally a brown hat. Okay. Um, don't remember Gordon Elliott wearing a hat. No. Or Rich uh, Ritchie was he wearing a hat? He a hat man. Well, Rich Ritchie, yeah. Like he's got the sunglasses as well on the hat. So. Um, right. Now I can, I'm not a sunglasses man. I can't carry off sunglasses at all. I don't know about you, Owen, when you're on your American trips or Jer. But uh, you can do sunglasses, not hats. Big, big difference. And I was just going to ask then, in terms of um, what happens. Like, I mean, you're going to deliver us with fantastic tips all week. We want to make a lot of money, thanks to you, John Duggan. How will you be enjoying the, the fruits of your labour on a nightly basis in Cheltenham? Uh, I'll be literally studying form and getting like Homer Simpson's accountant into a, a degree of edge uh, around the fact that I haven't been tipping enough winners and I should have. Um, I will celebrate Cheltenham when I get back home. Right. Uh, is the way I'm kind of thinking about it. And like, it, it, it is, it is something that I, I've always missed out on, but like, these are the, these are the decisions you make. Uh, Cause you know, if you're in the firing line of, of people's opinions, uh, you have to try and um, just try and really get to the bottom of, of the form book. Um, mm-hmm. As boring as it sounds, and mm-hmm. it really is boring because there is a great nightlife here. Um, people have a great time. Some of the some of the hostels are here. Hostelries here around here are, are beautiful. And uh, you know, if you're an ale drinker like I am, you know, it's 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 Bob's your uncle. You know, are you, you kind of like Jose Mourinho peering through the curtain at nine o'clock every single night, thinking, God, I wish I was out there. Well, I thought Wenger was a voyeur, but uh, as a, <laughs> rather than Jose Mourinho, um, no, it, it it really is. There's so much opinion. There's so many things I've subscribed to, lads. There's, 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 one thing I would advise folks is don't get bogged down in the preview night circuit <laughs> and the chat about these things have been this kind of thing being a certainty. Don't bet when you drink. Obviously, bet within your means and, and get everything done in the morning because I think your own opinion is the best opinion. Uh, like it is called jumps racing for a reason. And I do think you need to be on with good jumpers. 
need to be able to be horses with, with that jump. Cheltenham is a quite a tight track. They're always turning and twisting. And, and you've got to be able to have a horse that travels well, that jumps well. The ground will dry out here, which horses appreciate better ground. And, and horses so many times come back and show their best form at this track because the track is so unique and the festival form from previous years is definitely worth uh, counting. But um, I'm going to bore you. Um, like I'm sure we'll have a, a night out uh, in, in, you know, to celebrate Ryan Bram's win shortly. Um, in Dublin, but uh, no, we there'd be no John Duggan or Don Juggan behavior or Doug Joggan behavior this week. Uh, Don Juggan, I mean, I am Matthew Fitzpatrick, Patrick Cantley, Brooks Kepka, Emiliano Grillo. Those five names are on the list now, and as well as Don Juggan on the, the list of people that. Well, they're probably in the lake. They've been in the lake so many times with their shots in the Players Championship 17th hole the last few days. Uh, who's going to win that? I don't know, but uh, yeah, look, I just hope we've got to uh, have a good week and um, that you know. Uh, people enjoy themselves and uh, we have a few good winners Irish winners and there's some good storylines um, like, I think one of the things that was clouded by last year lads was the amount of small trainers that the yeah. winners remember you had having help us you had Paul Hennessy on Friday Night Racing just before he won a 33 to 1 shot at Cheltenham Peter Fahey had a winner Belfast banter and you'd hope there's some more of those stories for in Porter this year 100%. As, as apart from the big names and the big yards and the big owners alright we'll let you go today John but thanks very much for that John's All right, been lads. with us every Find morning yourselves from nine to half nine throughout Cheltenham here on OTB AM and of course you'll be able to read his stuff on otbsports.com a reminder OTB AM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day it is time for us to turn our attention to the weekend's football I'm delighted to say Adam Pope is with us of BBC Leeds Adam good morning to you morning lads what an end to a game like uh <laughs> I, so if, if anybody hasn't seen this, because there was so much football all over the weekend and there were so many storylines happening, uh, Leeds versus Norwich. Leeds played quite well, I thought, you know, created, I've only seen the highlights now, but created loads of chances, hit the bar, and then in stoppage time concede. And it's like, oh no, this is this is the bit where we actually know the story is written, it's fated, they're going down. But it's not true. They scored a last bit of winner. <laughs> uh, tell you what, honestly, by half time, guys, they could have been six up. Uh, I mean, they had a good shout for a penalty, but they missed. I think, honestly, a handful of really good chances. So what we'd seen against Villa on the Thursday was, it, it was a 180 degrees turn. It was it, everything that Jesse Marsh wanted to happen, happened. But it was classic, and we've seen it under BLC, you know, have all the possession, all the chances, don't score enough goals. They get the one. The big key moment for me was losing both Rodrigo on the hour and Bamford on 45 minutes. Bamford hasn't started for six months. So there was definitely a, a switch in, in the type of play from there, and they allowed Norwich back into it. And then suddenly, yeah, it's sort of inevitable happened. But wow, what an end. I mean, literally the board for six minutes out of time went up. Norwich had scored, the life had gone out of the place, and then, uh, of course, a Brazilian, you know, bit of brilliance, and then, you know, Gellhart scores a winner, and, you know, we had a couple of those sort of moments under BL, so late winners where they beat Villa away and, and Blackburn at home in the Championship, but this was extraordinary because of what was at stake, it was a phenomenal end to a game, but hey, you know, we had one guy messages with his heart rate, he was at 210, he said, so yeah, it was unbelievable, honestly. Is um, Bamford injured or was that like we're going to give you 45 minutes to ease you back in what's the long term or medium term or next week prognosis for him yeah no I think he's looking okay for Friday it was literally a case of look he can give us 45 because let's say he's played that one game where he came on for 20 minutes against Brentford and scored but Newcastle away was the last time he played in a, in a, in a draw and, and that's six months ago so he just sort of ran out of steam you can see he was blowing um, Rodrigo's just done his quad a little bit but I think he may well be okay he didn't describe it as an injury as such but he had his probably his best game 
I'm not saying overall for Leeds, but certainly this season, I think playing with sort of two strikers probably suits him. But, you know, he was controlled aggression as well from him, as well as some brilliant sort of creative play. So, um, but the presence of Bamford guys was so important. You know, he was occupying, you know, defenders and, and was the focal point for anything coming forward and brought people into play and should have scored himself. And you realise just how much they'd missed him. The... Atmosphere around Leeds has been one of the things that we've talked about most since they've come back up. And even when they were charging up with Bielsa, when Bielsa got taken away, we weren't sure what was going to happen. So how important was it to get one of these statement wins? It's not, it's not a statement win, but a, maybe a signature late last minute, last gasp. It kind of it just gels everybody together for at least the next few weeks. Yeah, I mean, the nature of the victory, the way it's done like that, people talk about it for ages. But look, if it had been a 1-0 victory from the first minute, it would have been just as important for Jesse Marsh, I would say, and obviously for the club. Um, look, the, the way it's gone since Bielsa has, has, has been sacked and um, is that there's been a massive period of mourning for a lot of fans. And a lot of fans don't agree with the decision and still don't agree with the decision. And obviously then two defeats under Jesse Moss and the, and the second one was dreadful to be honest against Villa then people start questioning his, his you know his credibility and, and they start examining in, in microscopes of analysis of what he's been saying and how he says it and everything all the negatives start coming out very quickly and the board were under big pressure the other night against Villa they were literally getting verbal abuse from you know a lot of fans as they were sort of leaving the ground at 2-0 and, and obviously at 3-0 so this was a massive moment for, for Jesse Marsh and you know when it went to 1-1 one, one, you just oh no this is going to be so negative and get really toxic this if we're not careful so it's a huge thing and I think it is fair to say it's a statement win because it just restores everybody's faith that little bit more going into the next game which is walls away What's been the overarching change under Marsh? Well the, the first thing for me having seen a bit of training as well is that it isn't man-to-man. That's the big thing. So when they go and reclaim the ball, there is a press of sorts, but they try and swamp the whoever's in possession of the ball with, with several men. And then what that does do, it can leave one side of the pitch a bit open. And obviously the better, you know, Premier League sides can switch play and, and, and Villa, you know, found a lot of space on Thursday night. Um, it's still very, very intense. They're much more compact out of, out of possession because they're not, you know, man for man. So there's a lot of pluses to it as well. But at the moment, you can still see until they start implementing it properly that, you know, there are, you can get at leads as well, which you could do under Bielsa, of course. But going forward, they're still very exciting. But what I would say, it's a lot narrower and they get in towards the penalty spot a lot quicker rather than relying on, on massive width, which is what, you know, um, Bielsa did. But um, so it's going to take a little bit of time to, to get used to. But you're still going to see a very intense Leeds United, and that's going to be pleasing on the eye to an extent. And they're not afraid to go a little bit longer as well. And, and clearly with Bamford there, then that's then that's something they've got in their armoury. Um, but by the end of the game yesterday, when you haven't got Rodrigo, you haven't got Bamford, and you've still got Dan James, and you know a relatively small sort of front line, then it, it, it becomes very difficult. I would say so. Again, the key to ha- is to have these key players fit. And let's let's be honest, under any other manager than Bielsa, they're going to have to add uh, to uh, the squad in the summer because it just isn't big enough or deep enough. Is there going to be resources available to do that if they stay up? Well, it's an in- interesting that if they stay up, you- you'd think so. Because look, the plan is that the 49 San Francisco 49ers, who've got 44% of the club, it looks like they're going to take over at some point. Now, 
would go into the championship, stop that and leave their stake it is. I don't know at this stage, but there has to be resources available because there's a new manager in charge. And, and look, he's and, and also I think a lot of this squad have after sort of three and a half years of Bielsa probably got to got to their limit as well. So that that there has to be some injection of cash if Leeds are going to go to the next stage, which according to the current owner, Andrea Rabdazani, is to hit Europe within three to five years. Right now, they've got to stay in the division. They have to look at the resources they've got, of course, but there has to be a reshaping in the summer. Otherwise, you know, you stand still at the very best or go backwards. And if you don't go down this season, you go down the next. So if Leeds are going to survive and progress in the Premier League, there has to be some form of injection into the squad. Is there an automatic trigger for the takeover or is that kind of TBC in the future, depending on what happens? Yeah, I, I think it's TBC. It's just been a, a gradual creep over the over the the, you know, the recent years, to be honest. So the details of the contract we've, we've never seen. But I, I'd say there's another important aspect to it as well, guys, is that the 49ers, we were told quite clearly by one of the directors, Parag Marate, that they have a stake in the ground as well, which is a separate company to the football club itself, you know, both owned by um, Andrea Rajatani. So their, you know, their, their reach is as long here. They want to make that ground into, a, it's 38,500 at the moment. They want to make it into a 60,000 Sita, uh, and there's, there's a lot of development to go on there. Pete Lowy, who has been responsible for some huge, uh, or through his family, some huge uh, structures uh, in the UK, like Westfield developments, like in London, you can see them near the West Ham ground, there's one in Bradford. You know, he's involved now too. So, with that in mind, th- there's a lot at stake here uh, as well. So, um, whether there's a trigger point, uh, like, you know, an amount where they go, right, we're going to offer you X amount and that's it, it's ours, I don't know. But certainly I think they're they're in the prime position to go and do this. And I would imagine it happens sooner rather than later. I just wonder how much of it depends on the status of the club in terms of its league uh, league division. I did wonder what involvement they would have had in the arrival of, of Marsh. And, and okay, it's very easy for us to go, oh, he's American, they're American, there must be some kind of link. But, I mean, is there some kind of link? Is that is it that they want to go that general direction? Well, th- th- that's really interesting. I very much feel that the appointment was Victor Orta's and the current sort of board. They've been following, and um, Victor Orta's director of football. He's been following Marsh for a couple of years. So I don't think it's a 49ers appointment as such. And to be quite honest, Marsh was very clear, um, apropos almost nothing in his first major press conference, to say this is not an Americanization of the club. Now, he just came out with that and he just wanted to get that message across. So, um, look, obviously they will have had some say in it, there will have been discussion over it, but I do know that Victor had, had looked at him for you know a good couple of years. So it was always the plan that he was going to come in this summer by the looks of things because um, it, it was clear that the club was going to go a different direction from carrying on with Marcelo Bielsa, whether Marcelo wanted to stay or not. You know, he only signed one-year deals at a time. So it was clear that you know, Marsh came in 12 games earlier than he was expected to, but certainly he was their man. And there was a, we were told in the recent, but recently by the chief executive, that it was a unanimous decision that he was the best candidate for the job as well. So there must have been some input for the 49ers on there, but essentially I, I feel it was a, a present uh, setup at Leeds decision under the director of football. All right. All of the good stuff that the 49ers have been credited with over the last couple of years has been generally uh, landed at the door of Parag Marate. He's the kind of um, contract genius who signs players up to deals that are tend to be team friendly. And he's generally lauded as one of the smartest executives in the NFL. So if he was to be more centrally involved with Leeds, you would think that the business side of Leeds would be well looked after. And then it's just making sure that the stuff on the pitch matches that. 
It is. And, and I think to, to do the latter, then, you know, the 49ers, I'll admit that, you know, they're not football people in that sense. So they would need people that would know what they were doing on the ground. So that, that you know, you'd think that people would, that are in position could stay or will they bring other people in themselves? But you're right about Pragmarite. You know, he's very, very well known for his um, contract negotiations and what have you. But essentially what he's doing is through the 49ers enterprises is, is collecting, you know, investors into 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 various you know, projects. This one happens to be Leeds United. But Pete Lowe is the interesting one for me. Um, as I say, the guy who's behind Westwood, he's based in LA. The family is Australian. He even does a bit of stand-up comedy as well as Pete Lowe, but he's a big Leeds fan too. He's been a Leeds fan since the 60s. He's been over recently too. And I think it's really interesting seeing his involvement, um, you know, and he clearly has an affinity with the football club, not just the not with the bricks and mortar of, uh, of Alan Road. So I'm wondering if he will become one of the main players going forward. But right now, honestly, with the with the way that, you know, that the division is in the balance and, you know, the whole relegation thing at present, does do things get put on hold? You know, do things wait a little bit longer, or do you just forge ahead? And that's really interesting because you just feel that there's like a slight shift in attitudes at the moment, and whether the current setup will continue as a nice sort of um, you know amicable sort of arrangement, or whether there will be some uh, swinging changes in the summer. Well, we'll see. Adam, good stuff. Thanks a million for joining us. Cheers. Pleasure, guys. It's Adam Pope giving us some insight into the goings-on at Leeds at the moment. We've given themselves every chance of survival with the win at the weekend. A reminder, OTBIM is brought to you live each morning by Gillette Labs for an effortless finish to your day. We'll be back at Cheltenham tomorrow for a full preview of tomorrow's card with John Duggan. More reaction from the Rugby and GA weekend and maybe an emergency power ranking? Yeah, let's do it for yeah. sure. Okay. We're going to talk uh, Champions League as well and some other opportunities to look back on a remarkable hat-trick from... Uh, Cristiano Ronaldo whatever um, treatment he was getting for his hip flexor obviously it was very flexible at the weekend it it was the most flexible hip flexor I've ever seen reflexed it was flexed as hell OTB AM with Gillette get into your flow with the new Gillette Labs Razor with exfoliating bar 